I mean, we have to be responsible. If you're a breeder and you really care about whatever species it is that you're producing, whether it be a bearded dragon or a corn snake or whatever it is that is your thing, you need to be responsible. You need to think long-term and not just what do I have today when you're selecting for your holdbacks and when you are looking at your pairings, you know, what are you doing? You know, are you at this point with a bearded dragon? It's a bad idea to try to cram too many genes into one animal. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Hey guys, we are back. Post-Thanksgiving podcast. Um... Hope you all had a good holiday. Hope yes. you got leftovers. And, and ate uh, a lot, saw your families or saw friends or anything that you do for that special holiday time. Um, or bought see. a snake. Or bought a snake or a t-shirt during our Black Friday sale. Okay. But other than that, the Black Friday sale is over, but we do have t-shirts still available. It goes until Monday tonight at 12 p.m. The t-shirt sales 12 12 a.m. <laughs> 11.59 p.m. <laughs> um, we do have t-shirts available, and we obviously have snakes available, but... And t-shirts are 34, 35% off if you happen to be watching this live stream right meow. Um, snakes are available, but obviously we're not shipping to pretty much anyone outside of, like, Pennsylvania. <laughs> or I don't even know. <laughs> AKA, we're not shipping. We're not shipping. shipping. It's just too cold. <laughs> yeah, it's um, too cold. Uh, holidays, we're not going to take the risk this time of year with delays and weather so unfortunately in the winter we're always going to be dealing with weather but at least i can squeeze one in there sometimes and it'll all work out but uh yeah not going to happen during the holidays i'm not going to take that chance but we do have springtails available on ebay for all those bioactive friends or you can buy them off the website or oh they're on the website too <laughs> to know that. wow you're pimping out ebay huh who you work for Okay, <laughs> nobody. Um, but we will be at the January Repticon in Baltimore. I think it's at the end of the month in January. And that was everything. a solid date. So uh, stickers, if you guys want to. Yes, yeah, stickers. We are trying to support our friends or fellow reptile keepers and reptile businesses. So if you guys have stickers, send them to us. And we'd be glad to put them on our wall. This will also be featured in our YouTube videos in which you will see our first one with this backdrop tomorrow. Um, also, thank you for all the people who send us shirts because we are wearing one of Emily from Snake Discovery shirts. So thank you, I'm Emily. Howard shirt. Yep, you're wearing Crocodilian Conservation Center of Florida. So if you guys have seen any of our videos or any of our podcasts, we're always wearing either like conservation shirts or different people. Trying uh, to wear. <laughs> we're just supporting friends that have reptile-based companies. And Melissa's weirdly showing off to, in like, the video. Make it chomp. Chomp. <laughs> but it didn't really work. Okay, we're like That's eight failure. years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, but let's see. Any other announcements or anything? I can't think of anything. No, that's pretty much it. If you guys want to support us on Patreon, you can do that. That would be oh, sweet. We're too. on that new weird thing called TikTok. TikTok. I'm not there yet. Joe's there. I'm not there yet. Yeah, but. it's hard to... Uh, it's bringing out my inner 12-year-old, I feel. I don't like it. No. It's a new thing. New things are weird. 
I mean, I never liked Vine, and I know it's not the same thing, and Ryan's going to get mad at me, but they're similar. I think you and... need to warm up to it. You need to actually play with it enough to where it knows that you're not a six-year-old child. <laughs> you're you're going on it, and you're seeing what initially is happening because it thinks you're just Everyone's a normal. A child. You're Well, it thinks that the normal user is looking at this, which is like, you know, kids who like memes and weird meme culture. And, li- and, and lyric kind of... things and yeah, yeah, dubbing, yeah. singing and all that. But you got to like keep on the feed and like, you know, I just like all the animal things and now I'm getting animal things and it's nice. And okay. uh, so I've r- really enjoyed it and I've really enjoyed putting up videos there. So you guys want to check us out on TikTok. Are we at Port City Pythons on TikTok too? We are at Joe Fallon PCP. Wow. Thanks for the inclusion. Sorry. Sorry. But you also can't do it on two phones or else TikTok knows. And they're like, you're a business. So we're not going to let you do things. So, so that's why I like, yeah, I need to be careful not to make like the quality too good and not to make certain things because they don't like the fact that because they know that social media, all that is, is free advertising for businesses. I mean, that's how we've used Instagram is we've gotten basically free advertising for right. no for nothing. And now all of a sudden they want you to pay. So we're not reaching as many people. But TikTok, they're letting you reach so many people. But they want to make sure that you're not a business because so they want to get started. Then as I'm a, never getting on TikTok because I'm not going to create my own. You got to create your own. No, well, you got to create one just to look and just to be in the ether because right. you got to know what's trending on there and all different things. And I don't know, you'll probably see us dancing eventually. We'll depend how. <laughs> well, you're going to be the one dancing, I think. Okay. Well, this is a very long intro. Let's get back to <laughs> real life, non 12 year old things. Real life. Um, today our guest is Heather Moy of Fairy Tale Dragons, um, our first bearded dragon uh, podcast. And you guys know I don't do things with legs, but I'm actually interested just in the bearded dragon world and everything because I know yes. nothing about it. Absolutely. So Heather, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. Of course. So obviously you breed bearded dragons, but how did you get into reptiles in general? Um, it's an interesting story. I actually, when I was young, I, my mother actually, when she was young, she had, my, my grandfather made her like a little critter keeper and she was catching critters and things like that out in the yard. Um, and I kind of followed after her in that. So when I was young, I was catching all types of stuff. Um, in fact, I got kicked off of the school bus when I was in elementary school for taking a king snake on the bus because I wanted to <laughs> let it go in the quiet place. Um, so the bus driver wasn't real happy about that. We had this place called the quiet place um, at the back of the property at school. It was like a garden. And I thought that the snake would be really happy there. And the bus driver didn't agree with me. So I got kicked off. But anyway, you as lucky as Ron was sneaking things onto a bus. No, which <laughs> no. is a weird um, commonality. Yeah, that you guys things. both had that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. His stories. I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did most of my growing up in Central Florida. I was born in uh, Houston. Uh, we moved to California. Then we moved out to the Marshall Islands. My father worked for uh, McDonnell Douglas, and of course, that was a test missile site out in the Marshall Islands. Um, we lived on Kwajalein. So we moved here when I was about six and a half to central Florida. And other than moving to Dallas and moving to Atlanta and a few other places, I always end up back. So, um, <clears throat> so anyway, I ended up, I was, my primary interest actually in school was marine biology. That's what I was going to go into. And, uh, you know, life happens. I met my son's father. 
Um, we got married, you know, uh, so on and so forth. So I ended up in the jewelry industry, long story short. Uh, I spent about 20 years in that industry. There is some crossover with the jewelry industry and reptiles, which was interesting. Um, but um, so I managed uh, luxury jewelry stores for a long time. Uh, but I was working, you know, 70 hours a week. I never saw my son. Um, I didn't really have the quality of life, if you will. I had the paycheck, but, you know, I, I missed my son's, uh, uh, you know, field trips and things like that. So um, I ended up um, my first marriage after 12 years didn't work out. And I ended up um, dating somebody else and he had perhaps some difficulties keeping jobs and bought him um, a ball python. I had bought him a scorpion, um, so on and so forth. And he decided all of a sudden that he was going to buy and flip reptiles. So that's how I landed up in the business. So I would go to work, I would come home. And there would be all of these species like in tanks and so on and so forth. And, and uh, a lot of times they were imports. Um, I had a number of, you know, Tokay geckos latch onto me over the years. Um, <laughs> and uh, the bearded dragons, I was um, obviously, I mean, he was buying from importers. He was buying from wholesale. He wasn't producing anything. So a lot of times they would come in and they had parasites and so on and so forth. So, I, you know, I would say to him, hey, you know, how do you take care of this versus this? I don't know. I guess it's the same. Well, no, it's not the same. So I ended up starting to do a lot of tremendous amount of research in the evenings after I got out of work. How do I take care of this? How do I take care of that? Um, how do I treat them? And the bearded dragons, the aromastics, the frilled dragons, there was just something about the lizards that I really enjoyed. So, I mean, we had a, we had a huge rock python python that we named Gertrude. And I mean, I, I came home from work one day and he had um, gone down south to pick up a shipment. And all of a sudden, literally in my bathroom, in my guest bathroom, there were two, um, a pair of white throat monitors uh, <laughs> just, just randomly showed up. So not, it wasn't, he wasn't very responsible in that regard. So uh, he had a, a, a lamp clamped onto the edge of the uh, the bathroom um, countertop. Yeah. Anyway, I'm like, aren't they going to knock that off? No, 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 they won't knock that off. Are you sure they're going to knock that off? Yeah, well, my townhouse almost went down over that. So, anyway, it was it was an interesting start. Um, when I exited that relationship, then. By then, I had purchased um, a number of bearded dragons from reputable breeders because uh, that was something that I was very much interested in. And I grew them. I purchased them as babies to grow them up because that way I know what my stock is. I don't like to buy adults. I never have even from the beginning. Um, and so when I exited that relationship, then I took my bearded dragons with me. And once that um, everything was concluded with that, um, then I went ahead and formed uh, fairy tale dragons. So I've been breeding dragons for about 15 years now. Um, I began fairy tale in 09. So that's wow. how I ended up in the reptile industry. So, and eventually I did both. I was a hobbyist. I mean, I had a legitimate uh, business, but primarily a hobbyist. So I worked full time. Uh, and then also, you know, did the expos and the shows and had a number of, um, small pet store accounts and things like that for quite a while. So it's just in the last three years that I've done this completely full time. 
Wow. So I'm kind of curious, what made you go the breeding route rather than, you know, reselling animals or, you know, what you saw was going on at the time? Because I'm, I'm very OCD. I'm a perfectionist. Um, and I mean, there's definitely, there's, there's, that's not what I wanted to present to my customer. I want to believe, I have to believe in what I sell or I can't do it. Um, I have to feel confident in whatever it is I'm selling. And that won't come from picking it up from, you know, from an importer or, you know, flipping it. Um, I, I mean, that's, I'm not, I'm not dissing that business, that sector of the business, because there's definitely, um, I know a lot of great people uh, that, that are in that, that that's what they do. Um, that's just not what I want to do. So I like to con have control of, of what I'm selling. I, you know, I want to be, uh, I want to know its history. So I'm just, I'm very meticulous. Yeah. Yeah. That's instead of selling like sunbeam snake to 12 year olds and stuff, that's always been like, I don't know. For me, it's like, I would, I would be way too nervous to sell anything because you're usually working with animals that are going to be difficult, you know, whether to treat or whether, you know, the species are less common and I well, don't know. I mean, when, we've, when we've had the white throats, I mean, I I've specific, I've turned people down for sales because I didn't think that they were going to be able to properly house them, care for them. You know, I, I'm very thorough. I'm very detailed. I don't, I don't hold anything back. I, I let people know, look, if you choose this, this is what you have to provide. This is what you're looking at. I, I, I'm not, I've never been the type of person that's like here, bye. Um, you know, when I'm selling, for example, you know, a bearded dragon to, to a family and the dragon is going to be for a child, you know, then that's going to be their pet. That's important. I have two kids. I get it. Um, and so I'll, oftentimes I recommend, I tell them, I'm like, you can go either way, but I do recommend males because you don't have to worry about the female anatomy. You don't have to worry about her potentially laying in fertile eggs. Mom, if you don't want to deal with that, mom, if you are, you know, not really a hardcore reptile person, then you want to go this route. You know, it's, it's less complicated. It, it happens infrequently, but it does happen and it can cause complications. And so I, I'm always very upfront, um, with anybody that I'm working with. No and now I'm selling. So, yeah. And now I guess to backtrack it, which I feel like breeders, you know, you have that extra layer of responsibility to make sure that your animals are going to the proper home. So I, I think oh, yeah. that's something. Hands of it, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's something that like everyone who's planning to breed, you know, you need to know that that is now that extra responsibility, but to kind of go ahead on that, uh, can you go into more details of how exactly say if, you know, random person off the street wants to breed bearded dragons. I mean, how should you responsibly get started? Um, I've had, oh God, I've, I've had hundreds of people contact me over the years and ask me how to get started, what I recommend. Um, and a, a lot of times my response, sometimes my response throws them back because I think they, they worry that I'm worried about competition or something like that. And I don't believe that, you know, competition is always a good thing. You know, it, it causes all of us to strive to be better and and, um, you know, to not get complacent and lazy and whatnot. But um, one of the things that I always tell them is start slow. Um, bearded dragons are not, they're obviously very prolific. They're not difficult to breed, uh, but actually caring for them, caring for their offspring, uh, the feeder bills, they're probably one of the most expensive reptiles to produce um, and maintain just because of, you know, there's, there's so many things that go into them. I mean, my, my feeder bill is enormous. 
Um, and people don't think about that when they get started. So I always tell people to start slow. Um, I usually recommend that they raise up their dragons. That's my personal preference um, rather than buying adults because some most, not all the time, but most of the time when somebody's selling an adult, there's a reason for it. Right. Why are you selling it? Um, you know, other than, I mean, like I said, I mean, you know, you go through cutbacks and stuff like that and it's fine, but um, you know, I like to raise mine also. I get them at least from, I don't like to get anything bigger than a juvenile personally. Um, but I tell them to start slow, you know, the first year, you know, when you, after you've raised them up and you've done your research and you've gotten used to raising them up, that gives you some experience already. Um, before you have, you know, 60 mouths to feed, um, then at that point, you know, if you want to do one pair, I usually recommend start with one pair. Just start with one pair. Even if you have a 3.3, start with one pair because that girl can, can produce eggs every 14 days if she chooses to do so. And oh. so you're looking at, you know, like rapid fire, you could be sitting on 100 babies like that. And if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't have the experience, if you don't have an outlet, um, that can be hard, you know, and, and the animal suffers and uh, the individual that's trying to make that happen suffers. So it just ends up being like this huge, big mess, you know, um, you end up with a lot of nips and, you know, missing tails and things like that because they're over their heads. So that's what I did. And that's what worked for me. Anybody that doesn't follow that advice, <laughs> typically I find them out within less than two years because I can't take it. So, um, you know, I started my first year, I did one pair uh, and then I did two then I did three. I stayed at three for a while because keep in mind, I was also working full time um, and then went to four and five and so on and so forth. I stayed at about um, producing about 800 to 1,000 oh babies gosh. a year. For, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, for a good while, for quite a few years. And that was while maintaining a day job? Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, um, I mean, you get a system and you get, uh, I, there's no way. I mean, if, if I were to produce back then, you know, at the beginning, what I produced this year, for example, I mean, it would have been a train wreck because I, I wouldn't have had the ability to, to do that. Now it's just like autopilot. So it's just, it's not difficult. So. Yeah. And I, I think that goes for breeding any animals because, yeah, because yeah. uh, we've had our jump up and it's like, ah, I'm drowning type of situation as well. Oh yeah, but, absolutely. <laughs> but how many, I mean, that one animal, so go back to them being able to lay eggs every 14 days. So what is typical? What is atypical? Um, are people trying to double clutch them? Can you get more than two? Um, a all you need, they, they can lock one time um, and female can multi-clutch. So, and it depends on the female. I mean, I have one bloodline that I've been working with now for about 13 years. And my girls in that particular bloodline are notorious for laying every 14 days. So, and they can lay, you know, up to seven clutches. Um, so, I mean, that's a lot really fast. Uh, most of the time they'll lay every 21 21 days or so up to about every four weeks. Um, you know, I've got some girls that'll lay once a month, just like clockwork every three weeks, every two weeks, you know, 17 days, 19 days, whatever. Um, but, and they can multi-clutch just on, on one lock. Wow. So, and it just depends on the female. I mean, sometimes you may only get one clutch, but other times look out, you may get seven. Um, so you have but, to be prepared for right? any of that. Um, clutch size can vary, uh, 
pretty drastically. I've had girls lay as many as 42 eggs, although, no, wait, 45. <laughs> I had 45. Um, In one clutch? Yes. Um, that's really unusual. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. Um, the one bloodline that I was talking about that really seems to like laying every 14 days, those girls have a tendency to be like 30, 32, 34, 36 eggs. Wow. Um, average though is in the 20s so you'll have some girls that may lay 12 some girls that may lay 16 18 um so so you have a lot of, of variance there what's the size of an average uh egg um the eggs are a little bigger than a about the size of a quarter i guess okay you know not quite they're mm, <laughs> i don't know three quarters <laughs> of an inch long just thinking no, of fitting forty-five. In yeah, because I mean, like, bearded dragons oh, aren't it'll, it'll giant animals. Egg. Yeah, no, I have. Uh, we have several large incubators, so they they'll fill up pretty quick. <laughs> and are these clutch sizes? Say the first clutch is forty-two. Is the second one thirty-five? Is it? Does it is diminish no, as right. clutches um, go on? Most of my girls will will maintain like right within a couple of eggs. So if they lay, you know, some of my girls will lay 32, 32, 32, sometimes wow. like 32, 35, 30. But, but I mean, a lot of times it's, it's pretty consistent for that girl. Um, their first year, they may lay, you know, less than they do their second year. Um, so it just depends. How big of an incubator do you have to hold 800 <laughs> eggs? Um, we have several incubators. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I can fit about a thousand eggs per incubator so but they hatch pretty quickly too so um they hatch like i incubate at 82 so they are hatching out depending upon where they're at in the incubator anywhere from you know 65 to 72 days um so they that's long out. for us snake people right well <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i'm thinking like for example the white throats you know they take five months <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so to me, it's a quick turn. Um, so anyway, so I mean, it's a pretty quick turn. So, you know, as it fills up, by the time I fill it up, then usually, you know, um, usually that it's beginning, you know, the top is starting to empty out. But yeah. That's wild. So I got a little bit ahead of ourselves, but I want to bring it back. Oh. So say, um, you know, someone's just going to a show trying to pick up a pet bearded dragon. I mean, how do you suggest people keep how do i suggest they keep them or select yeah them? yeah so just general both, husbandry both. no um, no no let's do selecting first. I always told, let's walk I through mean, the whole process yeah the let's whole see, like thing. when you walk into a show like i know for corns at least to us like we can tell they like the table to look no no that's not <laughs> what i was gonna say i was gonna say like we can tell like the tables or you know what to look for as far as like the breeder you're going to choose from I think what sucks with bearded dragons is I always see a person just with a big clear tote. I don't know if there's any other way, you know, to do it. To do I it. don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I've tried multiple systems as far as display. Um, I've tried, you know, uh, like condos stacked. I've tried all sorts of things. And I found really that the most approachable people felt most comfortable approaching the, the table. They didn't feel intimidated or uncomfortable. Uh, and the easiest for me to stack in my car was was a stacking system. My my bins are a little nicer than the traditional, um, you know, target visit, but they're a little shorter profile. 
but it is honestly, it's one of the easiest ways to display them. I personally don't like putting them in, in deli cups. I mean, other species I certainly will, but I'm not a fan of putting my dragons in there for a show. Um, I try to minimize the stress on them. And do they just not do well in a small space like that? Or why is that? Um, why do I not put them in the deli cups? Yeah. <laughs> the bearded dragons are, I, <laughs> let's see, how do I put, I've just always, they, they're more dependent upon heat than some other species. Like for example, um. a crested gecko, you're not going to put them under heat. Um, that would be a problem. So they do fine in a deli cup. A leopard gecko does fine in a deli cup. Uh, the bearded dragon, they do fine in deli cups. And I know some people that do present them in deli cups. I just prefer to, you know, if I can provide them some space where they're eating in front of my customer, where, you know, they're, they're able to see their activity level. I just think it's a better presentation. Um, and then they can get a little bit better idea of what they like and what they're looking for. Um, their color, you know, they'll color down, obviously, if they're not, um, if they're not warm. So they may get a little bit more stress. So that'll impact their color at the show. So I try to make sure that they're, you know, presented uh, best way possible. So, and, I, and then I can actually feed them there. People love coming up and watching them eat. Um, what I tell people when they come in and they're considering getting a bearded dragon is I usually let them know, you know, where in the um, venue they can uh, get their enclosures if they don't already have one, uh, what types of things that they do need, what, what their requirements are. Um, and then I also let them know what to look for in a bearded dragon so that whether they buy from me or elsewhere, then I hope that they're picking up something that is, you know, healthy, that, that has a, has a shot. So, um, you know, I tell them to look for the, uh, the dragon's eyes are clear, um, that they're up and they're, they're active. Um, if you have one that's taking a nap, of course that's fine, but you don't want an entire, you know, a tub full of dragons that are just laid out flat. Motionless. Yeah, motionless with their eyes halfway open. Chances are, um, you know, that dragon doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell of making it. Um, I usually recommend, too, that they select one that's at least six inches or larger. Some vendors, unfortunately, will bring them right out of the egg, and they have mm. an extremely high mortality rate. I mean, mm. we're talking, you know, 95% mortality rate. Wow. They're just, yeah, they, they can't take that. So um, is that just stress too early on? It's or is it yeah, going to an inexperienced it's stress, keeper? It's going to an inexperienced keeper that, you know, hatch taking care of a hatchling like right out of the egg is is, you know, differs from one that's a little bit more established, one that's, you know, even one or two months old. So they uh they relocate easier when they've hit that size. So, and it's not even like, I mean, I have some that'll hit six inches and I'll decide, no, that one's not quite ready to go yet. And so I'll hold it back a little longer. And then I have others that I'm like, you're ready to go. You know, they don't care. <laughs> so I, I bring them when I feel like they're conf, you know, I feel confident that they're ready for, um, for a new home and that they'll do well with the relocation stress. Do you have like a max amount or a number you typically like, like to bring to shows or it just kind of depends? It depends on the show. Um, Obviously, Tenley, I bring more than I in Daytona. I'll bring more to those shows uh, and the Tampa show than I will to um, like Jacksonville, for example. Uh, some of the smaller shows, I don't bring as many because why stress them out? You know, I don't feel that they're um, a lot of times a lot of the shows that I do too are within driving distance. So I can go home that evening and, and restock if I need to. <laughs> um, so 
you know, a smaller show, I'll bring 20, 20 animals, 25 animals, okay. sometimes a few less, 17, 18, um, <laughs> to the larger shows. Then I'll bring, you know, 40, 50, 60, just depends, oh. 80. <laughs> I think I think that's funny because with snake people, we're always like fill up the whole table with the display, and we bring all of our animals out, just hoping that yeah, someone will like never a have look, eighty. But no one ever sells. No, it, but we know, never have eighty. Who's bringing? I mean, there are people who are bringing eighty six. We don't. Yeah. Uh, but I think it also, you know, it depends on like how you're displaying it. You know, the people who just put their snakes in deli cups, they can fit a lot more animals than someone who's using a display case. And I guess another I thing would be... I don't like to overstuff my bins either. You know, right. I, I typically if you look at one of my... You know, if you look at one of my um, tubs, you'll see anywhere from the smaller dragons, you may see six or seven. Um, okay. As they get larger, then that number goes down. Because I, I think that providing the customer with too many choices uh, oftentimes creates confusion. And I think that it kind of, it makes things more complicated. It's just overwhelming. You know, if you're, yeah. if you're trying to pick one out and you're looking in a tub of 30 animals um, mm. and I don't keep them that way either. So I don't keep them in crowded conditions like that. So I don't want to display them like that. So. And I'm curious, I've seen people use like paint marker to determine sex, but I mean, how do you do it to make sure what's um, what? I mark them with a non-toxic uh, nail polish. Uh, like a kid's it's a non-toxic polish or i can use puffy paint um it sheds out so and i i mark i used to i used to do i used to mark both sexes and i'm like why am i doing this i only need to mark the males or the females so <laughs> true i mark yeah. the males you know like the others are, are probable females easy <laughs> <laughs> right that so, makes sense. Yeah. so i'll mark them so yeah but it, it makes it easier um when you're at a show and it's a saturday morning and and you're super swamped and you've got multiple families looking in the bins and multiple breeders, it's easier for them to just scan it while they're waiting for me to free up and be able to see what everything is. They know that if they see, you know, a dark blue or blue mark at the base of the tail from me, that it's a male. Um, so depending upon what they're looking for, it makes it a little easier. And then I'm not stressing the dragon by constantly lifting their tails either. So I mean, anything that's above a juvie size, I know that dragon by now, and I know what sex it is anyway, so it doesn't matter. But the little guys, you know, I don't want to be bothering them by doing the doing little it tail right there. lift. Yeah. Right. And while we're on the subject, Darren Watson from the chat asks, how soon can you sex a dragon after it hatches? Um, guaranteed sex? Um you know, it's when they're about a juvenile. So, I mean, you can sex them pretty early on. I mean, right out of the egg, if I wanted to, I could lift their tail and, and you know, and get a pretty good idea. Although uh, typically by the time they're about, you know, six inches or so, then it becomes about five inches. It becomes pretty apparent. Um, there is, you know, a lot of people talk about the flashlight test and things like that. And you can certainly shine a light behind it um, and makes things a lot uh, less complicated, makes, makes it a lot easier. Although that's not completely foolproof, so I caution anybody that thinks that they can definitely do that, and and that's the end all because that's not exactly necessarily the case. I personally don't even mess with that. I don't even sex the dragon until um, I'm ready to to sell it, or if I'm looking at one and I'm like, wow, I really want to hold this one back. What is it? But I just don't. I just don't mess with it. I mean, a lot of times the first time I sex a dragon is when I'm getting ready for the show, and I'm like, oh, are you a boy or a girl? You know, getting ready to list something online. So I just don't, I mean, I guess I could, but what's the point? They're not ready to be sold yet. 
Right. <laughs> so I'm I'm completely ignorant. I mean, what are you lifting the tail to yeah. look for? <laughs> uh, when you're looking for the hemipenes, so when you're lifting the tail just above the vent, um, if you shift the tail very slightly from side to side, um, then you'll see the hemipenes. So you'll have, you know, a, a bump, the indentation and the bump. The female will typically will just look like a little half moon, if you will. So. I'm trying to envision. Although I'm gonna have, have to Google this. Have a male that decides to present late, so you know. Oh, so oh they're in there, but they're just not. They just, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can have one that's a little bit more difficult to tell. I mean, I've purchased dragons from breeders, very experienced breeders, that were sold to me as females, and lo and behold, no, they were males. So, and you know. I'm sure that that's happened to me, my clients as well. I mean, it does happen. So, I mean, I've been looking at the little guys for 15 years, so I've got, a, <laughs> I've got it down pretty good, but. Yeah. So we're going to, I think we're going to post up this picture of it right anything. now. No, there's two, it looks like there's two indents um, past, uh, like past the cloaca, okay. I guess would be the bearded dragon still, right? We're still, is it there's still, still cloaca. Oh, there's still hemipenes. <laughs> so I would assume they're, they're still cloaca. Let's share this. Okay. I see the bump, like this bump and then this bump. That's a male. Okay. And then what? Femoral pores. Okay. So then now I need to look at a female. Uh, so female just has no bump. Correct. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see it a just no looks bump. Like a little, look, looks like a little half moon. I mean, there's some diagrams definitely you can Google that are much easier. Whoa, there's some nasty stuff on that. <laughs> I don't know why. We've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah it's like kind of in snakes sometimes i mean the probing or even the popping um if you can pop effectively that may be a different story but sometimes with probing i mean you'll get like less endowed males or just kind of tweeners that will be like so you can get males that just have kind of smaller bumps right yeah they're just not as pronounced so just kind of remain uh, i tell people they're a pat for now <laughs> Gotcha. Interesting. So yeah, this would be the go. male. Yeah, that one's a better. And that would be the representation of what you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, by the time that they're juveniles, um, you know, and, and particularly into subadults, I mean, it's it's in your face. It's really obvious. I can teach people online that contact me how to do it. You know, you'll have a lot of people that have one bearded dragon, and I'm just curious: do I have a boy or a girl? So, you know, I'll show them where they need to go to check it out, and then they're like, "Oh, I have a boy or I have a girl, whatever." And do you, so you said that you usually prefer people start off with males? I, if, if they have no intentions of breeding at all, if they have no intentions of breeding and it is a family pet, then I usually recommend a male, um, particularly if they're not reptile people. I mean, with bearded dragons, you get a bit of everything. I mean, you have just like with horn snakes, you have you know, the little kid, the little boy, the little girl that wants a pet. And then you have the collector and you have the breeder. And so, you know, my clientele is very widespread. Um, <clears throat> they're not all serious keepers. In fact, many of them are not. So many of them are families that, you know, want a pet for their child. You know, that's the next generation that's growing up um, <clears throat> to take our place one day. But, um, but anyway, so I, I just, it, it's less complicated for, for, a, you know, a parent that is not, um, you know, a reptile enthusiast who's a little uh, nervous about the, the whole process. I, I prefer, I, I let them know that up front. That way they can make a choice as to whether or not 
they want to um, acquire a female or not. Now, if their child is dead set on a female, I mean, every one of my clients has my cell number. They can contact me at any time. They can text me at any time. They all know that. Um, I've had people contact me 10 years later and ask me questions. I've had people contact me with 100 questions in the first week. That's fine. I have no problem with that as long as they're, you know, asking the questions. I'd rather them ask than not. And I'd rather them ask me than get the information and try to figure it out on Google or, you know, in a reptile group or something like that who everybody has a different answer. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, last time I kept bearded dragons, I think, you know, it was kind of reptile carpet heat rock type of time period. Uh, so how does someone effectively do it? I mean, what, what do you need to start off with besides uh, obviously no a tank? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, for, if you're starting out with a baby, I tell people, I mean, you can start out with something as small as a 20 gallon, a 20 long. I usually don't, I don't recommend, I actually do not recommend anything smaller than that because the dragon can't pop properly thermoregulate. Uh, in a 10 gallon tank, it's really easy for a new keeper to overheat them. Hmm. So they need to be able to thermoregulate. They need to be able to get, you know, to, to go and bask, but also get out. They need the opportunity to cool down. And you can't do that, if, um, you know, in a 10-gallon tank. It's just too small. Uh, so 20 long is the minimum that I require my clients to get. A lot of them nowadays will just opt and go ahead and get the 40, which is what a single dragon needs. And as an adult, um, the 40 breeder works really well. Uh, and so many of them will oftentimes just start out with the 40. So they do need, uh, obviously, the enclosure. And there's a lot of different options, you know, the, more like the condo types and things like that. Most people will, will go with the glass type, though, whether it's the open front or the slide top. So that's what most people are still using for, for keeping a dragon. Um, a lot of my clients will get, um, you know, we'll start building something. We'll do things more in depth or, or we'll upgrade to something even larger uh, as the dragon grows. And, and I certainly think that that's a wonderful thing to do. So. Um, they do require heat. They do require UV. Uh, I don't recommend heat mats, anything like that. Dragons sense most of their heat from above. Um, they can sense heat from, from their belly, but not very well. So if they're getting overheated, you know, they regulate um, based on, on what they're feeling from above, not below. So they need to be able to, um, to, to put a heat mat on if it malfunctions, you're looking at, you know, a burn or worse. So I don't recommend them. And they actually, a lot of people think, oh, I have a bearded dragon. It has to stay warm. So things that commonly happen is people will leave on the lights for 24 hours uh, a day, um, which I mean, they sleep. Um, they need that cool down period. It's actually good for them. So they need to be able to, to bask during the day. Um, and then at night, that cool down period is important for them. Otherwise they get severely dehydrated. So people that use, you know, the night heats, I tell them no night heat at all, uh, unless yeah. you're, unless you're regularly dropping, you know, I'm in Florida. So obviously, I mean, my house, I don't ever let it get below about 68 because no, thank you, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's too cold. <laughs> um, Melissa is very jealous right now. Right? You can't sense it, but. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but I let them know, no night heat at all. You know, now I do have clients, obviously, that live in Canada, that live, um, you know, in, in Alaska. I mean, areas that where you're at that, I mean, it gets very, very cold. So if, they not, if their home gets really cold and their home drops into the 50s and they have a little dragon, then getting a low wattage uh, chi, the ceramic heat emitters, is advisable for nighttime heat. 
Um, but we're talking like low wattage. We're just trying to take the chill out of the air. We don't really want to bump it, you know, above, you know, 80 degrees. I mean, if they can still be in the 70s, I mean, that's ideal. But in the 80s is fine too. So there's no set, you know, break point. You can't do this at this particular, I don't know. Yeah, no, I guess that. rules. It's like there's no rules in nature. I mean, <laughs> yeah, people like to like to simplify, especially keeping of reptiles yeah, to be yeah. very formulaic, right. which oftentimes there's baseline, well, but to, it doesn't always just, work out. There's always way. variables. Um, but since you have so many, do you have yours all on timers to turn off their heat at night? Or? I used to when I bred solely, when I had uh, everything solely indoors, then everything was on a timer. So I did that up until, um, until I up until that point, remember me talking about producing about 800,000 dragons a year. So up until that point, I had everything on timers. Um, when over the last three years, um, I, I, I had a situation where I wasn't able to keep uh, my dragons in my home any longer. So I had a townhouse for a while. HOAs don't like that. Uh, and they wouldn't have all fit anyway. So um, I was utilizing, we were utilizing a warehouse. So uh, that was not temperature controlled. Uh, so I didn't use timers because I prefer to, to be in control of that. And I wanted to make sure that I was there. So I don't fully test. I don't fully trust timers uh, and lighting. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So unless I'm, I'm going to be home. So. so you'd have to go there every night and turn all of those off or. Um, well, when they were at the warehouse, I was there in the, uh, I was there in the morning and got them turned on and ran them. And then in the evenings before I left, I, you know, shut them off or I had somebody else shutting them off for me. So. Gotcha. And now as the, as the pet owner, like, oh, go ahead. Oh, and now, I mean, I have, I have dragons that are outdoors, completely outdoors. Um, my adults, I have some adults that are on still on an indoor outdoor system while we continue to build. And then I have, um, I have babies that are in the back building. We have a 2000 square foot building at the back of the house. So mm -hmm. I have, uh, juveniles actually that are back there. And then I have babies and juveniles in my living room. So, <laughs> so they're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, I'm You're right now I'm running about people, 65 tubs, I guess, in my living room. So yeah. And racks. So you might as well uh, just call so, it your bearded dragon room. <laughs> might as well not even yeah. call it the, the <laughs> living room. <laughs> we all have reptile houses and not even yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In the formal dining area are the um are the crusty geckos. So you know formal <laughs> <laughs> uh, <horrible> to me. <laughs> For uh, sure. But do you want to do some questions from the chat? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I just wanted to to ask just because I mean, I don't know anything about light bulbs. I don't expect anyone else to know because, I mean, I've never, I barely ever use a light bulb. So um, what do we do as far as uh, UV as well as heat? Uh, the UV, what I recommend are, I prefer the linear tubes. Um, I do not recommend the coils at all. They're pretty inconsistent. The coils are typically all made in China anyway. And so um, they have a real inconsistent emission of UV. And they have a tendency to sometimes they will still, even to this day, um, they'll, they'll, even after years of them knowing that it's a problem, they'll burst, they'll have a, a burst of UV where it'll actually cause uh, almost like snow blindness, uh, but in the beard dragon, keratinitis type of uh, like snow blindness. And so it's temporary um, as long as you get them out of it. But sometimes a new keeper that has a coil 
they will uh, notice that a dragon will start closing its eyes all the time. It doesn't want to open its eyes. And that's because they've experienced, um, you know, basically a burn to their eyes. And so I'm not a fan of the coils at all. Um, there's a compact made by uh, Zoomed that's pretty decent, that has a pretty good emission that works okay for a 20 long, but I never recommend it as a, a permanent solution. It's something more of a temporary. Um, the linear bulbs, either Zoomed or Arcadia are the two that I recommend. And then it just depends on the enclosure that my client is going to be using as to which bulb I recommend. So I think as an industry, well, in general, a lot of times we think more must be better. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, sometimes people are using very, very high output um, bulbs with a low profile enclosure. And that to me, that's, that's detrimental to, to, the, to the reptile. Um, they do, obviously they bask, um, but any lizard, um, you know, when you're watching them out, for example, even just the common anole that we have here in the morning, you see them all basking. They all come out and they bask. My dragons that are outside, they come up in the mornings, they go up and they bask and then they retreat. They go into some of the lower levels or the subfloor and they'll vanish for a little while and then they'll come back up and they'll bask again. They're not constantly basking. So, you know, they're not constantly taking in tremendous amounts of UV. So I feel it's unfair to any reptile, um, you know, to uh, subject them to that without providing them a place to hide. So that's one of the common things. If you're going to use a higher output, then make sure that they have a hide. If you're going to use a higher output, make sure that there's a safe distance between the bulb um, and where the reptile is basking, typically basking. So. And what is there? Is there an exact? I always kind of, I always kind of um, offer, uh, um, I always spend time with each of my clients, even if they're online, um, recommending what they get based on what they have, what temperatures they keep their home at, and so on and so forth. So, you know, somebody that keeps their home at 80 degrees is going to require a lower wattage heat bulb than somebody that keeps their home at 70 degrees you know, because your ambient is going to be different, which therefore your basking is going to be different. So I can usually tell you right away, you know, if somebody keeps their home at 76 degrees and they're going with, you know, a 40 gallon breeder, what size bulb they need, what size heat bulb they need. And is there an exact temperature that you're trying to hit? Or anything um, like that? It, you know, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Some dragons really enjoy basking at about 102. Some of them like it 115. I mean, some, I usually tell my clients to shoot for about 105 to 110 for a basking spot, but giving them the ability to, to get away from that and still bask a little cooler if they want, because I mean, I have dragons that really like it hot. And then I have others that, that don't. And I mean, I've noticed that the entire time that I've been keeping them, they're all a little bit different. They don't, there's not a, you know, a set number. The big thing is giving them the opportunity. I tell them, <clears throat> instead of focusing so much, I, I mean, the temperature is important, but pay attention to what your animal is doing. Pay attention to um, their, their activity. You want to see a dragon come up and bask in the morning. You want to see them get warm. Then you want to see them kind of go out and about and explore, kind of going back and forth throughout the day, going and basking. If they're always basking, then they're too cold. If they're never basking and they're in the corner, they're either too hot they're sick, there's something else is going on that we need to address. So by watching the animal, 
I, that's how I, I pull it. More, I, I'm more instinctual like that. I mean, I, I watch what my animals are doing and tweak it accordingly. So. Right. And now since that's kind of the pet setup, I mean, how would a breeder start? Cause obviously commercial breeding is going to be most likely a different setup than a pet keeper. Right. Well, as far as pet keepers, I do, you know, the whole thing with, um, you know, co cohabiting cohab and things like that. I don't recommend it. Um, I don't recommend it. I, yeah, I mean, I do it, but I mean, I'm very experienced with it. I know what to look for. I know what signs uh, I'm constantly separating and, and sorting. So, for example, when I have a clutch of, of dragons that hatch out and I say I have a clutch of 20, um, then I'll set them up in two bins. So there'll be two in each tub. OK, as they grow, then I separate them out and I, I separate them according to size. You're going to have some that are going to outgrow others. And as they do that, you don't want to leave them together. You know, the one that's trailing a little bit is is not going to do well in that scenario. Whereas if you separate them, they'll start taking off and sometimes they'll even pass the one that was, you know, the, the fastest grower right out of the gate. So it's constantly like, you know, every week or, you know, whenever I notice it, really, I'm just going in and kind of tweaking it and sorting it. And as they get bigger, then I separate them more and more out. Um, so, you know, for um, that's how I do it, you know, as far as as a as a um, as a breeder, I don't like to overcrowd at all. You overcrowd and you've got huge problems. So the last thing you want to do is generate stress because then with stress, you know, it lowers the immune system. It lowers their ability to fight parasites, which they naturally carry because it's in their bugs. It's in their feeders. Mm -hmm. um, so you want their immune system optimal. You want it functioning um, to the best of its ability and, and suppressing. You're, you're going to suppress it by overcrowding. So and you're going to start getting a lot of nips and things like that. Um, a lot of breeders think that they're getting nips because um, they're not feeding enough. So they'll throw in more, more food, but it's really, um, I mean, that can definitely be part of the equation, but oftentimes it's, um, they're nervous. They're nervous. If you, um, I don't, I don't, um, my dragons aren't just sitting in a, in a flat bin with nothing to climb on. They always have something to climb on. So they're able to kind of get away from each other. When they hatch out out in the wild, um, you know, when they go to bask, they may still all stay in the same area for a while, obviously, um, but they're all going to be on their own little individual branch. So they're not going to be all huddled on top of each other. So if you're sticking them in a bin, a flat bin, and there's nothing for them to climb on, there's, there's no choices to make, um, it causes them to get nervous and it can cause mm -hmm. aggression. So add in if your temps are too high um, and perhaps your diet isn't what it should be, you know, you're not feeding them as you should, you're definitely looking at a problem. Hmm. So is it kind of like, because I know a big thing, especially with newer people into the hobby and kind of where the hobby's going at the moment, it's like people are all into enrichment. So is that something to where like, you know, you keep the bearded dragon busy or else they start you know, messing Having around issues. with each other. Um, Could that be part of it? Yeah. I mean, just providing them with choices, providing them a place to go, providing them, um, you know, um, the opportunity to sit in two different areas and still be able to, to, to get heat. So they're not constantly just stacking on top of each other. So, and, and again, that goes back also to talk about overcrowding. If you're overcrowding, then you're going to have dragons in there that aren't getting what they need. And, and then you're going to have a problem. 
Right. Yeah. So for with snakes in particular, you know, we try not to have two snakes fighting over the hot spot. So it could be your bearded dragon, you know, they're right. They yeah. can't both get and the same heat. Stack. And a lot of times people think, oh, that's cute. They're cuddling. They're not cuddling. I mean, we have a tendency to put our human emotions on 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 what in particular lizards are doing, because uh, I mean, a bearded dragons, let's face it. I mean, they're pretty interactive. They're they're funny to watch. I my dragons when when I when I'm ready to feed, they know that I'm coming in to feed them. They know that, um, you know, that that I've got the feeder cup in my hand and it sounds like a little it sounds like a, a um, rolling thunder because they all run to the front of the bend and they go. And I mean, it's hilarious. And the first, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's really it's something else to watch. <laughs> the first time on saw it, he was like, oh, my God, because everything that he did was always outdoors. Uh, he raised all of his babies and everything outdoors where, you know, my experience has been indoors. And uh, the first time he saw that, he was like, oh, my God, um, because they literally they just all come hauling, you know, to the front and, and they're just like waiting. I mean, I can be on the other side of the room and they're all just going crazy, ready for their bugs. But anyway, um, where were we? I got sidetracked. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. We, we hop we all hop over the place. But I think it's 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 cool to see reptiles kind of make that association okay yeah human emotions on it yeah so when so when they're stacking they're actually competing for heat you know that's a dominance thing it doesn't mean that they're going to get aggressive with one another necessarily but um it's a dominance they're they're competing for heat so they're stacking on top of each other and the one on top obviously is the i win because you know they're the one that are that's receiving the most heat so right and i mean a little bit onto heat. We have uh, a question from the chat, and she's just, you know, keeping a pet, and she's wondering her house is going down in temperature, and it seems like her, you know, young female wants to brewmate. Uh, do you suggest them brewmating, I or should petting her keep them up? I don't recommend letting them brewmate that young. I mean, the reality is, is they're going to do what they want to do, um, but I do try to keep them up at that age. Uh, if you're home, if the temperature in your home is falling, then I recommend to my clients to uh, increase the wattage a little bit on your bulb. That's, um, for example, a lot of times I'll tell my clients if, if they if they get a lot of temperature variance in their house throughout the year, mine's pretty consistent, it's always warm. Um, but I tell them to uh, invest in a little bit higher wattage bulb and then one of the extension cords with the, with the controller on it so they can mm-hmm. kind of dial it up and dial it down. It's a super easy and expensive way to modify your temps without constantly changing out and tweaking bulbs and, you know, and, and, and then, and then a a keeper that uh, a pet keeper doesn't necessarily have to go out and get a thermostat and, you know, and spend a tremendous amount of money. I mean, it's super simple. You can just, you know, pop it up a little bit when you've got a cold front coming through, or if you live up North and it's cold, you can dial that up um, and then gun it and see what you're getting. So, but I mean, a lot of times you can snap them out of that um, by increasing um, the heat a little bit, you know, the basking area a little bit. And she followed that up actually by saying the reason she thought her animal was trying to brewmate, uh, here it is, is because she kept digging and digging um, in the substrate. And Mm -hmm. she said, like, is that a sign uh, that she's like wants to brewmate or? Um, it can be a sign of a lot of things when, when a dragon is, uh, is digging, um, yeah, it can be because they're trying to hide. Does she have a hide in there? I mean, that's something you always want to make sure that your dragon has options. Um, people are in general, we're getting better now. Um, but there for some time, everybody's, it seemed like everybody's enclosures were pretty, 
pet keepers a lot of times were pretty bare. Um, they didn't offer them any options to climb. They didn't offer them any hides. They didn't offer them, um, you know, just the, like a simple fabric hammock, hammock in the corner works really well for a pet keeper um, because the dragon can choose to, to climb up on top of it or they can go and retreat and, and get out of the UV, get out of the heat and so on and so forth. So providing them with options is important. So if you provided them with options, um, you know, the digging is usually, um, yeah, they, they just, they want to hide. Um, it could be that they want to roommate. I had a dragon. <laughs> I actually had a dragon I posted online the other day. She was gone for like three weeks. She had buried herself in the sand and her, and one of the outdoors, she buried herself. Um, and then she popped out cause she wanted to, to the sun. It was pretty warm. It was like 82 or something like that. So she came out and she wanted to bask. So she just popped right up and climbed up on one of her basking branches and, um, She's two years old, but it was just, it's funny to watch them do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're literally, it's pretty, it's natural for them to want to bury themselves when they, when they want to roommate. When, when the season changes, that's when all reptiles, um, and I mean, any species, I, I mean, we get stressed out. I mean, even time change, you know, they talk about time changes and stuff being one of the most stressful time for, for even for people, you know, there's more heart attacks and strokes during um, you know, when we have the change at fall, than stupid savings time, yeah, right? <laughs> I hate it so much. <laughs> so, um, it, it's a stressful time for them, and sometimes they don't really know what to do. But uh, also, at six months, too, um, if she does have, I don't know if she has multiple reptiles or not, um, but if she has a male in the house, not necessarily one that's been around, but I mean, I've had them cycle as early as six months old. Well it depends on how big the dragon is. So some of my bloodlines, um, that's pretty unusual. I mean, that's, that's real unusual. Usually I don't see it until about eight months old, but I've had girls lay eggs at eight months of age. So. And how old is typical breeding age slash size? Um, well, it used to be when I started in the industry, it was a big no, no, or it was a, it was one of those things. Don't breed them ever until they're at least two years old and so on and so forth like that. Don't do that. Uh, then it was 18 months. Um, every dragon's a little bit different. Uh, if a female is not showing any signs of, of one, if, if she's not of size, in my opinion yet, if she's not um, mature enough, I'm not going to introduce her into, to a male. So some of my girls, I don't breed them until, you know, they're two years old. Some of my girls, I breed uh, a little bit earlier. It just depends. So, I mean, if you've got a girl that is, that um, this is the exception and not there. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but I've had girls um, from some of my larger lines that are hitting, you know, 400 grams and, you know, are, are large, I mean, big girls, you know, um, at, you know, 10 months of age, 12 months of age, and they're starting to cycle. I'll let them cycle in fertile eggs once, but if they cycle again, I'm going to put them with a the male. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with, um, with my vet, with my exotics vet, and it's better for them to produce uh, a fertile egg than an infertile egg. Mm -hmm. you know? So, so right. If they're going to drop them anyway. Yeah. I mean, nobody's carting them out in the wild. It's not like, <laughs> Hey babe, are you old enough? I mean, that's not <laughs> happening. I mean, if they're old enough, then, you know, so if they're cycling, then they're old enough. If they're cycling, then they're old enough, but I, I don't, it's yeah. Most it's, it's one of those, there's not a defined rule on what you should do. You know, there's different circumstances. So most of the time I'd say that my average, um, the average age that I breed a female is about 18 months to two years. So, okay. 
but but it has been younger though. If I have a girl that's exceptionally large and she's cycling, if she keeps cycling, I'm gonna put her with a male. So. And what about males? Breeding uh, size and age. I have breeder friends that'll breed them as early as five months of age. I usually don't breed them until they're you know seven or eight months of age. Um, basically, if they figured it out, then you know. And I have. <laughs> There, I've seen no ill effect from that at all. <laughs> do you have do you have unexperienced breeders? Because I know many snake species. You know, you may have a male that's younger, and he kind of has a little trouble figuring until he it out. Grows his confidence. <laughs> I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have some. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I I've had some where I, I literally I'll have a male in a bin, and, and I look over at him, and he's like four months old, and he's bobbing, and I'm like, "Are you serious, dude? Like, chill out." Um, and then, um, you know, and then I have others that, uh, a lot of times the hybrids seem to take a little while. I don't know why, but they do, uh, the hybrids for whatever reason, at least in my experience, which is, um, I don't have, I haven't had huge numbers of them, um, as far as, you know, that have been breeders for me, uh, at this time. So I can't draw that line, that conclusion, but it seems like they take a little bit longer to, to, uh, to mature in that area. So. Interesting. And hybrids, is that totally uh, frowned upon? And also, what are the, what the species involved? In that? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not a fan of, of hybrids in general as far as, um, you know, in reptiles. But um, we've, we've reached a point with the bearded dragon. The bearded dragons um, right now, we're about for um, anything outside of Australia. We're, we're really, we're approaching, we're at or we're just under at or over, depending upon the dragon, about 30 generations. So at that point, uh, with any species, we begin to see signs of um, inbreeding depression. So um, to increase the vitality, to try to, to help um, viticeps, pagona viticeps, which is what you traditionally see in the market, um, we've, some of us uh, cross them with barbata, uh, pagona barbata, uh, to, try to, um, to try to help out with that to add some new blood, if you will, because it's not like we really, we don't have the option to, to have something shipped in from Australia. That's not an option for us. So we're having to find other ways um, to, to help with that. And that's one way that is definitely um, that we are seeing some success with. So do you see the favorable behavioral traits uh, from that species from Viticeps? I mean, is there a, is there a discrepancy discrepancy on how they act? They're, they're pretty comparable. The, the Barbata have a tendency to be a little bit more um, uh, aggressive. They have a tendency to be a little bit more um, um, skittish. And they have, um, like I noticed, for example, with, um, with my hybrids, I had to be sure that I provided them even more places to bask because they traditionally like to, to do a bit more climbing. So by providing them more options that help to reduce their nervousness, they like to climb. So now the further you get out, for example, um, you know, the original cross. So, you know, those that were the offspring that came from, a, you know, a pure uh, viticeps to a pure bravada, um, those definitely are a little bit more skittish and so on and so forth. As you move out and we get into further generations, then that dissipates and we're pretty much going back into the, the, um, the um, um, uh, attitude of, uh, of, a, um, of a traditional viticeps. 
the reality is though, is that a lot of that stuff was already crossed out years ago. Um, I know that when Ron was on, he mentioned to you guys that he used to produce uh, Barbada. So he produced thousands of them a year and nobody wanted them back then. Nobody wanted them at all. Um, so they would in wholesale shipments, um, then they were getting, you know, sent out as bearded dragons because they are bearded dragons, technically. Um, they were sent out as bearded That's dragons. Convenient, then, yeah. Right. So, so Viticeps and, and, uh, Barbata and, uh, even Rankins were all going out in the sh same shipments, uh, wholesale as bearded dragons. So, I mean, the reality is, is that, you know, if you were to do DNA testing on what we have, uh, there, they would. They would, you know, they, it's they've already been hybridized. We're just trying to to add some new blood, if you will, to do the best we can with that, because we are starting to see some signs of um, of that. That's going to be a problem in the coming years. Now, as far as viticeps go, I mean, I know that sometimes, you know, there may be European animals that are from a different lineage. And maybe you're able to import them from Europe. Is yeah. there any hope of that, or are you? Um. Not really. Uh, a lot of times I, I see a lot of people, they'll bring in, they'll be saying, oh, I just imported this. Well, great. You know what happened is they got bloodlines from the U.S. <laughs> they brought them into Europe, they bred them, and then they went back to the U.S. as an import. So with with very few exceptions that is kind of like, I don't want to know how that happened or, you know, speculate. I mean, the reality is, is that some of that probably is going on. It shouldn't be going on. But um, uh, most of that is just stuff that's just, crossing the sea back and forth <laughs> you know what's going into china is coming it, they, i mean china imported a term a ridiculous number of um bearded dragons from the u.s well now people are importing and saying that <laughs> a different bloodline it's not a different bloodline you know it's just i mean we're just, just like coming back. so i mean for that reason i never import anything i'm like nope <laughs> But at least, you know, it's seeing that our community is getting much closer as far as we're able to send animals from to, different um, continents internationally and stuff like that. I well, think that yeah, social media did all that. I mean, before that, I mean, imports were were um, there was the general public, you know, like now, I mean, I can have, uh, you know, a client from the UK get a bearded dragon from me and off it goes, you know, if they choose that they want to buy from me or uh, and, and in the past, I mean, they wouldn't have known where to go for that. I mean, that, that just was not something that was available. That wasn't a service that was available to, you know, a common keeper or a smaller breeder. That was, that was something that was only for the larger breeders or those that were already, you know, importing, exporting on a regular basis. So, I mean, that's just opened up a whole new world. So. Gotcha. And make it Kate from the chat asks, do, does each species show, you know, a different head shape or... Distinguishing um, factors, basically. So when we're talking about the hybrids, it's kind of funny because some of them will, like for example, some of my uh, quote unquote fifty percent, which I hate saying that because it's not our half. They they always refer to that, but I mean, some of them are going to favor Barbata and some of them are going to favor Viticeps. Right. Um, so you get a lot of variation. So you know, within a clutch, I mean, you're going to have some that will definitely, and even the further I get out, I mean, I'll have some that look. Um, very that, that look very much. They take after the traits of a Barbata, and then I have others that take on the traits of a Viticeps. So, um, when you're looking as far as like if somebody's looking as far as breeding things that I look for when I'm purchasing one myself to grow up. And by the way, 
probably forever. I don't bring in a lot, but, um, and I'm very picky about what I bring in and from where, but probably for every, it depends on, on the set of circumstances, but for every 10 to 20 animals I bring in, I may only actually use one of them as a breeder. So oh, I, wow. yeah, so I grow them up. One of them has, you know, an underbite or they have, you know, some sort of trait that I'm, that's not something that I want to move Pet forward up. with. Right. And I'll, you know, I'll put them in a pet home. I mean, they're healthy. There's nothing wrong with them. They just, they don't have the characteristics that I want to see that I don't, I don't want to use them in their breeding program. So, um, but oftentimes people are, are selecting specifically for um, color or they'll, you know, a specific trait rather than paying attention to the, the body structure of the animal. So if you have an animal that has, um, you know, twiggy legs, uh, a really small head, um, body shape is kind of funky, wonky toes, things like that. I mean, those are all things that a really short tail. Um, those are all things that, that I don't recommend uh, using. Uh, in a Does hybridization seem to help that or hinder yeah. that? Or Yeah, no, it is. It's definitely helping that. So, and, and people, you know, and breeders just in general, um, now that we're entering into this, this, it didn't used to be a concern. <laughs> I mean, you didn't have much of that, but now we're starting to see more and more of that. So, you know, when you're selecting an animal, um, when you're going through, you know, for example, a breeder, um, if you have a clutch of animals and you're looking for different things other than just color, some of the most important things, like I said, are going to be, um, you know, they're the, the side, you know, are there, uh, you know, do their legs look like little twigs? And if they do, then you need to pass on that. So um, is their tail short? Is their head really small? Things like that. Do they have an overbite? Do they have an underbite? Those are all things that you need to pass on, in my opinion. And what do you do as a breeder when you produce those kinds of animals? I mean, how do you place them or do you call well, them? I mean, they're, if they're still healthy, I mean, they're, they're, there's nothing wrong with them going into a pet home. I think that... Um, I think that social media has done a little bit of a disservice um, in that area because um, it's created this idea, I think, in, in a lot of ways, that a dragon needs to be a specific way, that they need to be a specific size by a specific age. And if they're not, then there's something wrong with them. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, my kid is six foot two. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> you know, um, there's nothing wrong with him. He's six foot two. You know, are you going to call me because I'm five foot four? I mean, you know, you have natural variation, and I think that people have forgotten that, or they, they've, they've, some people have um, uh, taught that you know a dragon has to be, you know, eight inches by the time they're two months old, or, or there's something wrong with them, or they have to be this, or they have to be that. And, um, and that's just really, I mean, you get variation. I mean, I have some bloodlines that get quite large. I have some that don't. Um, you know, if you have a clutch of 30 dragons, you're going to have some that are going to end up being larger than another, just like a litter of pups or anything else. I mean, you're going to have variation. And, and um, it's not as specific as everybody thinks it is. It's not, they don't all grow to the exact same size. They don't all have the same, you know, I don't know, it drives me bonkers, but, um, you know, I have some dragons that hatch right out, right out of the gate. They grow very, very quickly. Um, and then they'll slow down and they'll slow their growth rate a little bit. And I have others that will start a little bit slower. They'll start more of a mid range and then they pick up speed. So, there's, there's nothing wrong with either one of them as long as they're healthy, they're eating well, they're getting the nutrition that they need. Um, you know, there's 
I don't know. <laughs> and what is that? I feel like we kind of skipped over the the feeding portion because I mean, obviously, that's important for every animal. But yeah, and that, and that varies too. I mean, some 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 have a higher metabolic rate than others. Um, some have you know females have a tendency to get a little hefty after they've produced eggs. Imagine that. Um, so they have a t- weight comes on easier for them. So I feed all of my dragons are on, um, you know, as they grow, they're all on their own feeding program. I mean, I look at the dragon, I, I know, um, it's not okay. Everybody gets 10 worms today. That's not how this works. Um, some of my dragons that ha- have a tendency to be, uh, to, to lean on the plus side, then I won't offer them as much protein as one that, has a tendency to lean on, you know, that has a tendency to be on more of the lean side. Um, Plus side is such a nice way to say that, by the way. Well, (laughs) well, see, here's the problem. A lot of people, I I watch this every day on, on social media until I have to turn it off. Um, You know, there seems to be, and and thankfully it's starting, I'm starting to see some changes there, but um, you, you have, um, everybody's like, look how big my dragon is. And he's only six months old. Like it's a competition. So you're stuffing the animal, you're causing him to grow at an unnatural rate. Um, and that isn't healthy for their, for their kidneys. It's not healthy for their liver. Um, it's just not good in general. I mean, they're going to hit the, you know, if you give them proper nutrition, uh, throughout their growing cycle, they're going to reach whatever size they're going to reach. There's no need to stuff them full of food. Um, and, and overfeed them to see how fast your dragon can grow because that's a detriment to the animal. You know, it's, it, it serves no purpose. Um, it, it actually, it, it's, it's harmful for them. Um, I see dragons online that are extremely obese. Uh, if you look at, at dragons out in the wild, they're, they're pretty lean. Um, they're, they're not, they're not these, you know, very round <laughs> Uh, animals that we often see um, people showcasing. So I always tell them if they start to see beardy boobs, which are like the fat pockets that I would call them boobs. Um, they're, they're like beardy boobs. They're, they're fat pockets that are sit right under here. You know, the, the like under there or in back like, of their back front off legs. The food. Back off the food, bud, you know, um, smaller meals, smaller, more frequent meals. It's, it's kind of common sense stuff. Um, there, you know, you don't, a lot of people will kind of stuff them, but there is no set rule. Some dragons require more food than others. So I always tell people, I'm like, look at your dragon. I mean, look, I mean, I've got, um, you know, I mean, I've got quite a few adults and, and I feed all of them differently. So it just depends. And do you take advantage of different food sources? I mean, as far as bugs go, yeah, I mean, what are the yeah, different? Rotation is very important. Um, the, uh, I offer them a lot of varieties. So my babies as hatchlings, uh, they're getting, uh, first of all, in Florida, we have a lot of limitations on what roaches we can keep. So I don't keep roaches at all. Um, I'm not a huge fan of keeping them. I think that they're good as a, um, uh, as part of a rotation diet, but I personally don't like them, um, in my collection as a, as a, um, as the primary feeder. I'm not, I'm not that much of a fan of them. They have a tendency. I noticed a trend um, back when roaches were getting very popular that um, that friends of mine, clients of mine that lived up north that fed exclusively roaches, they started, there was an uptick in uh, gout. Mm. So um, they, they have a tendency to, and, and, and dragons love them. I mean, they really do. They're like crack to them. I mean, they, they, they really take right to them most of the time. 
So, um, so I mean, they're great uh, source of protein. They're great as far as adding in the rotation, but I don't like to feed anything exclusively. So my babies are getting uh, crickets. Um, I like for them to chase them. You know, it, it kind of stimulates the hunting. Um, and so I do crickets. I do black soldier fly larvae. Uh, mealworms, superworms, size appropriate. And as they grow, the feeder gets bigger. Um, there's a common, uh, something that you'll see touted online all the time. They can't eat mealworms. That's absolute garbage. Um, I've been feeding them mealworms for years. Uh, they've been used as a stable feeder for people that have been producing dragons for 30 years. There's nothing wrong with, with a mealworm at all. They what are started that, huh? that, What started that belief in people that- I thought that it caused impaction. Um, so impaction can be a problem uh, in, you know, in bearded dragons. Uh, most of the time, the impaction occurs with a cricket being way too large um, because the, the, the leg oftentimes of the cricket may kind of jettison out if they swallow it wrong and it'll kind of jam uh, and it can cause paralysis. And unfortunately, a lot of times that, that will lead to death uh, if they're not able, if the owner is not able to get them to you know, be able to pass it. So that can be problematic. So appropriate size feeders is is uh, is important. So is is there any Sorry. like trick to using, say, a mealworm at this time or crickets? So say I want to use rats right before my snakes are going to breed, and then I might go back to mice when they're on a leaner time. Is there anything like that? No, I mean with the babies, I always offer. I mean. What I do is with them, but it's not for that reason. In the morning, I, I offer them crickets. And then in the afternoon, I offer them uh, a worm of some sort, you know, like for their, their later meals, they'll get uh, worms. That's more for my benefit than anything, because if by chance they didn't eat a cricket or two, I don't want to go in there and, and pick them out. Um, the crickets have a tendency to kind of, um, um, they can be kind of aggressive, and a dragon, when they pass out, they're literally like a toddler. I mean, they just they go to sleep. They're out. They're not getting up for, I mean, they'll fall asleep against laying against the glass. Um, you know, if you ever looked at a toddler in the back seat of a car and just been like, how can that be comfortable? How is that position comfortable? I mean, they find themselves in all sorts <laughs> of positions. I mean, it's so bizarre. But I mean, when, when the lights go out, they're done. So a cricket can literally chew on them, chew on them, chew on them, chew on them, chew on them. So if you leave a lot of crickets in there, um, it can cause damage to them, uh, significant damage, actually, uh, actually. It can also cause problems with, um, um, it could cause them to really not want to eat them. I've noticed that, you know, if, if somebody ha has um, erred and left crickets uh, in the enclosure in, a, in a, like a you know, a, a pet keeper, if they, if they left uh, crickets in there and they didn't clean them all out, the crickets will go find places to hide. And so when the crickets come out at night, once, once the lights go out, um, you know, they'll come out and, and particularly if there's no like leftover greens or anything, they'll come and pick on the dragon. And a lot of times that'll throw off the appetite of the dragon, that dragon will stop eating. So that's oftentimes one of the questions that I'll ask a pet keeper is by any chance, you know, are there any crickets running around in the enclosure? And that's actually on my care sheets to make sure that those are removed at night. So anyway, by me feeding that in the morning, <laughs> it saves me, uh, it saves me uh, the, uh, the extra labor in the evening of having to pull any out because they're completely annihilated by then. Right. There's just so much and where more do... attention. Oh yeah, this you is a lot harder than Yeah, and I mean I can go all over the board. I mean, I, I always tell me when I'm 
when I have a client that's purchasing a dragon from me, I give them a basic care sheet that has the basic information on it. And then I'm just, I just tell them, I'm like, just text me, just text me so I can fill in the blanks because there's, there's, um, there's so much, you know, little stuff to it. Right. And where do, where do the greens come into play in all this? Um, the greens, I, I personally feed greens in the morning. They're primarily when they're young, it's for, it's a source of hydration for them. So, um, I give it to them first thing in the morning. I usually make sure that the greens are really wet. That way they can go ahead and lap up the water. Dragons don't, most of them, uh, some of them you can train about half of them, I guess, about half. Um, but most of the, many of them will never drink from a water bowl. That's just not, that doesn't come, that's not what they do. That doesn't come natural to them at all. Um, so they need uh, the water, to, they need motion. They need, that needs to be, the water needs to be stimulated. So, um, you know, or they're lapping it up, they're getting it off of their greens or getting it off dew, you know, they, they and, and, um, like my dragons outside, I mean, they get a lot of their, uh, water from the morning dew and they love it. And they'll come up, uh, when it rains, they'll come up on the platforms. They have a choice. They can either, uh, retreat and they have plenty of dry places or they can come up. Uh, if it's been uh, particularly hot, then they'll come up. They love the rain. Um, so they'll come up and they'll, they'll drink, they'll like laugh it off. So, um, it's kind of interesting to watch, but hydration with them is, is kind of tricky. Um, a lot of people think automatically make the jump desert, don't need water. Mm. Um, and that's like the furthest thing from the truth. Dehydration is a huge problem, um, with animals, with, with dragons. And it's probably one of the number one killers of, mm. um, you know, for pet keepers, is the dragon is chronically, uh, you know, is, is con constantly dehydrated in a state of dehydration. So um, I always tell my clients to make sure that, you know, the greens are sopping with your vegetables. Uh, they get a lot of, like I offer them shredded squash. Um, the squash has a high water content, so they'll get a lot of water from that, um, you know, from their greens, making sure their greens are wet. Um, so, and then I, and then um, my clients will offer them baths, like in the sink, so on and so forth. So if they can, if they can, if they can teach them to drink out of the water bowl, it's great. But I always tell them they kind of need to tap the water to stimulate motion. So and to to drink that way. As far as the greens go, um, what kind of greens? Um, I offer a lot of variety. Uh, they love dandelion greens. Those can be a little bit harder for me to find, but when they're in season here, I snap them up, uh, which is really good for the liver too. Uh, dandelion, arugula, spring mix, um, uh, collards, mustard, turnips. I tell people, you know, escarole, if it looks good in the store, it, you know, if it's fresh, um, number one, it's usually the least expensive green there because it's in season and it's the freshest. So, you know, it's, it's, um, and, um, and just mix it up. So don't always give them the same thing. Cause just like us, um, you know, for you to eat the same thing over and over and over again, you're going to run, you know, an excess somewhere and you're going to run deficient in other areas. So if you're mixing it up, then they're getting different nutrients from different food sources. And do they need any supplementation? Yes, they do need uh, calcium and then they also need a multivitamin. So they do need both. So. And how do you administer that? Is it through the bugs or through the greens? Um, I usually tell... I usually recommend, I put it on my bugs because if by chance, you know, they, they always eat their, the babies always eat their bugs. Um, that's like, 
that's what they're going to go after. They don't always eat their greens, though. Some days they go after them and they annihilate them. You know, one may annihilate it one day and the next day it's like, eh, I'm not feeling it. Um, but they'll eat their bugs every day. So I typically will, um, you know, I recommend that my clients um, dust their bugs. So and then it just depends on the manufacturer because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of selection out there nowadays. So some brands um, are a little bit more chemically derived. Some of them are a little bit more naturally derived and some of them have um, a higher vitamin content than others. So I, I pretty much tell them to stick by the recommendations uh, that the manufacturer has, unless they let me know specifically what they have, and then I'll make those recommendations based on what they have. Did you just say dust the bugs? Oh, you've never heard? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to imagine this in my head. I'm like, yeah, um, No, I mean, I, literally, I mean, take it like I use big feeder cups, but um, I always, if you're using like a, a zip, little Ziploc bag, and if my clients like get the bugs up in like a little uh, paper towel roll, cut a paper towel roll and use that, the, the crickets will climb up into the, t the paper towel roll. Some of my um, moms out there don't want to touch the crickets. There's an ooh factor for them. And I understand that's OK. Uh, they can tap the, the roll into the bag um, and then just basically you're just coating them. You're just giving them a light coating. So interesting <laughs> kind of like the old shake and bake you know you shake up the bag and yeah, yeah. With, <laughs> i mean i do that with we haven't fish had enough in flour i, I coat flour around things but gut loading the bugs is important too that's something that a lot of breeders don't do um and that's a lot of that's something that a lot of um pet keepers don't do so but it is important what you feed your bug obviously goes into the reptile so you know proper nutrition for the bug while you have it is important um so, you know, I'm constantly gut loading them with, um, I, I offer, I, I offer different, um, veggies for a source of hydration is what I use. I know some breeders use the gels. I'm not a fan of those. So I use fresh vegetables and I change it out every day. So. And how do you, uh, do you do anything other than that? As far as like, can you gut load anything else that's beneficial other than just. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I play it by. A lot of my stuff is just on instinct. I don't have a specific formula. I'm not like, okay, I do this specific mix every day. Um, it depends on the season. It depends. I mean, a lot of different things. So, um, you know, I offer the veggies. I also use um, the um, sticky tongue. I use uh, a gut load by them that I like. Um, so I use that. I mix that with water, a little bit of water. Um, I'll use bee pollen sometimes, um, probiotics. Um, so yeah, kind of mix it up a little bit. Yeah. And is there, is there any way to like overdo it on supplementation? Are there any, you know, um, you can get D3. Yeah. You can get D3 toxicity. So, um, people that like, for example, um, my dragons that are outdoors, I don't give them very much D3. There's no need for it. I mean, they're getting it from the sun, you know, they, they don't, they're, they're producing it. I don't, I don't have to supplement supply that for them um it was more um the old technology the old uv technology like the the um you know and even up to like the t8s um the d3 was more of an issue than it seems to be now with the with the t5s with the ho the high output uv as as the quality of the bulbs have gotten better um then d3 is is toxicity is becoming more of an issue now 
So, which so now we're too efficient mm-hmm. with the D3. Yeah. Yeah. And so, some brands have a higher content than others. So, you know, um, a lot of times, um, like I offer mine because mine are on the, the, um, uh, the, I run the T5s for my indoor stuff. So I have days that I offer D3 and then I have days that I, that I offer without D3. So. Gotcha. And, uh, a question from the chat that you mentioned earlier, um, what do you dislike kind of about the gels for hydration for, I'm guessing that means crickets. Yeah. I just, I, since it's like that, it's the, um, like the silica gels, I don't really, you know, the cricket ends up consuming that the bug ends up consuming that. So I really don't want the dragon consuming it. So it's just, it just seems like a less natural source when you can just use vegetables. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's more of a, if I can, if I have an option of using fresh veggies, why wouldn't I? Because then they're going to pull in, you know, that's providing additional nutrition than just the water. So. Gotcha. Now, how do you keep, yeah, go ahead. I want to ask a question that someone asked in the chat, like a long time ago. It's my one like jumping back, but he asked it so long ago, I feel bad. Um, Sean Wagner asked, when breeding, how do you decide um, which ones you're going to hold back? Like, what are you looking for, um, for deciding what to hold back? Um, well, we kind of touched on it a little bit. I, I look for, um, I'm not going to pick the ones that are, I'm automatically not going to select the ones that are slower growing. Um, so I'm going to choose the ones that it's going to be in the top, you know, 30%, I would say, of the clutch as far as growth rate. Um, I'm going to look for things like, um, you know, their feeding response, their um, uh, the growth rate, the, the, the structure, the body structure, as far as the size of their head. Like I said, if, if I see one that, that the head looks kind of small for the, for the body, then that's not something that I'm going to select. Um, just something that has a really nice build, a nice solid build. Um, you know, some of them, when you pick them up, they have, they feel, you know, a lot stronger than others. Um, so, you know, good grip, things like that. I don't know. It's just like a little, a lot of little things. So, yeah, and I, feel. and I may hold that, um, you know, in one pairing, I may hold back six and, and then later, um, you know, come spring of the following year, cut it back, you know, to whatever it is that I want or, I may let all of them go. I mean, it just depends. I mean, sometimes I'll hold back six and I won't end up in a, in a pairing and I won't keep any. Sometimes I'll hold back six and I keep all six. It just it just depends. So it's just something that I think kind of comes with time that you figure it out. But I've never selected my animals based on just color or just, you know, um, you know, just the mute, the presentation of the mutation itself. There's all these all these different other these all these other factors as well. So as a breeder and someone, you know, who's producing animals of any time of any type, is it when you get into the number of animals you have, is it more important to think about like the health of your, of your whole, I don't want to call it a community. I'm missing the word. Colin, there you go. Um, Yeah. So are you thinking more so like the long-term health of your colony? Is that come like well before like the actual mutations that are present? Because for me, it's like, damn, I hit this like quadruple recessive, but this baby is like a slow starter or just doesn't 
look right. And it seems like the ones with the most genes always are like that. I'm not going to, that's well, not like, I mean, the the is that, you know, when you, t- when you have a mutation, I mean, it's attached to something and sometimes that something isn't good. So sometimes it's something that we don't notice. It's, it's, you know, negligible on the outside, but um, the more genes that you shove into an animal, I mean, that is, uh, uh, you know, a mutation is, is it's a defect. So is it, is it a defect that causes any issues or is it something that they do just fine with? I mean, but the more genes you stack, then yeah. And I think that, you know, there for, uh, for quite a few years, there was this huge race to, to cram as many genes into a single animal as you possibly could. And, and I think that's had a very detrimental effect. Um, and that's, you know, that's caused, um, you know, that causes additional um, weakness in the animal. Mm-hmm. which then you're going to have additional problems that stack up on top of that. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, some, I don't keep animals because they're four and five G. I mean, I actually, I've spent the last two years. Um, not that I was ever really heavy into that anyway, but I've spent the last two years kind of like stripping it down again. Mm-hmm. So I have, um, hypomelanistic hypo animals that don't have the trans gene at all. I have, uh, trans animals that don't have the hypo gene at all. I have, you know, normals that have nothing at all, or that are, you know, 50% possible head for one gene, but nothing else. So, um, and then I still have some that, you know, are like, you know, have combos, but, um, but I've spent a lot of time kind of separating that back out. Uh, cause I think that that is definitely where we need to go. If we want to, um, you know, continue with some of these species that we don't have access to uh, wild caught, you know, right. which obviously with the bearded dragon, that's not an option for us. So we have to be very mindful uh, in what we're doing and, and what we're selecting. So, you know, to keep back as a breeder, I mean, if somebody's buying one for a pet, then fine. But, you know. Right. And I think preserving the longevity is not something that's in the mind of every breeder, especially for something like like the species is in your hands. Right. But something like bearded dragons that are so, you know, like she said, you can produce so many. I think you're so, so I think, yeah, yeah. You're so so focused like, oh, I can make a million. I don't, I'm not thinking about, you know, how it affects the longevity of it in the future, but it's like, no, you still have to think that way. Even though you can, you know, one female can make 50, you still have to think down the line how that's affecting all of them as a whole. And like you said, we're not getting any new ones right no, now. Like, I, I mean, and, and the lifespan of them has 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 shortened. Um, I apologize if I cut you off. Oh, no, um, fine. Their lifespan has has definitely shortened. You know, when I first started, I mean, I was I was. Uh, retiring girls from breeding at seven and eight years of age, not because they had to, just because, you know, I already had so many of their offspring. I was like, she can retire now. Um, And so, and nowadays, I mean, a lot of breeders, you know, we're retiring them at, you know, three, four, five. I mean, there's some breeders that I know that don't use males more than for one season and then, and then they retire them out. So, um, you know, that's kind of, that's unfortunate. So, I mean, we have to be responsible. If you're a breeder, I mean, you really need to, and, and you really care about whatever species it is that you're producing, whether it be a bearded dragon or, you know, a corn snake or whatever it is that, that is your thing. And you need to, you need to be responsible. Uh, you need to think long-term and not just, you know, what do I have today? 
um, when you're selecting for um, your holdbacks and, and when you are looking at your pairings, you know, what are you doing? You know, are you at this point with a bearded dragon? Um, it's a bad idea to, to try to cram, um, you know, too many genes into one animal. Um, right. In my, in my personal, um, that's my personal viewpoint. I think that that's, that's problematic. So um, at this point, we all need to be looking at, you know, what is the structure of the animal? You know, how's its health? Um, you know, do what we can to uh, increase their lifespan instead of just seeing, you know, how many genes we can shove into one, <laughs> one bearded dragon. And can we talk about, because I think you guys have a pretty unique animal in the fact that I'm not sure what you guys call it, but basically your scaleless animal, you need to like moisturize it. I need some, I need some explanation. Okay. Um, that's the super form of the leatherback. It's a silky. Okay. So um, yeah, they, they're, um, they have, they're prone to, they do have shedding problems. Um, so they do need additional care. Um, keeping their, actually it's kind of, okay. So, we tried something that most of the most of the bear, the dragon industry would be like, oh, you did what? Um, but it was actually very effective on the silkies. It worked really well. Um, we actually uh, set up a misting system for them to mist them at night, um, and it works splendidly on the silkies. They didn't have any. They weren't getting any tail ring. They weren't getting any retained shed at all. They were shedding beautifully. Um, they were, they were doing fantastic and I didn't have to put anything on them. They didn't require, uh, you know, any type of lotion and this, that, and the other, that a lot of the industry is using. Um, I've actually, um, I didn't produce them for a long time because they are, uh, so problematic. Most, most your, your average keeper, which let's face it, I mean, a bearded dragon, I mean, we're, they're, they're mainstream pets, they're a pet. Um, so most pet keepers don't have the skill set or they don't care or they're not going to take the extra time uh, to provide for a silky. So I actually, unfortunately, as a breeder, sometimes you have, you know, your pairings line up and, and it happens to be two leatherbacks, but it has all the components that you're looking for other than that one. Oh, God, I have a silky now. Um, I've actually eliminated that. So actually in 2020, I won't produce a single silky which I'm like, yay. <laughs> um, but, and this year I produced very, very few, like very few. I think I had, I think I had one pairing that had silkies and that was it. So wow. I, I've pretty much phased them out. Um, they, they can be beautiful um, and they can live, um, you know, a, a, a normal lifespan uh, if somebody provides them with proper care. But most out there, not all, but most out there um, are not going to do what they need to do for the animal. So. Right. Yeah. That's just one of those animals that just takes a lot of extra care, but it's interesting to hear, to hear about it because, you know, people are messing around with like scaleless ball pythons now, and they, I think had to moisturize them. They get them to operate correctly too, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And I, I just, um, I personally moving for, I just, I, you know, I, I've, I've produced them in the past almost out of necessity because of what I held, but I, I, I am, I love, it's weird. I like the, I like 
very spiky dragons. And then I also love a really smooth leather back. <laughs> so, but, but some years I found myself holding back too many leather backs and then you're like, Oh crud. So, um, you know, I ended up with silkies. Um, but over the years, I've just decided that I just don't me personally, I'm moving forward. I won't be producing them anymore. So, but the, the leather back doesn't have any ill effects. No, not at all. No. And does that like, I could imagine the, the lessened of the, you know, the scales or the spikes or whatever, does that make for a brighter <laughs> dragon or what's kind of the end goal there? Um, you can see the, um, the detail in the pattern is intensified. Um, so that the pattern really pops on a leatherback more so than on a normal scale. So, um, you know, their natural pattern. So, and, and, they, and they do appear brighter, yes. About how many genes are there in bearded dragons and how are they, you know, are they recessive genes, incomplete dominant? What are you guys working uh, with? We have both recessive and incomplete dominant. So um, we have uh, the hypo, which, I mean, you have pretty much across the board. Right. Um, the melon. And the, that one is, uh, it's recessive. You have the translucent. Um, mm -hmm. That one is recessive. We have the leatherback, which is incomplete dominant, uh, with the silky bee in the super form. We have the dunner, uh, which is incomplete dominant. The dunner is also another scale mutation. Uh, the scale, the scales, um, rather than they, they go in a, um, it kind of creates chaos, if you will, with the, with the scales. So they feel more like sandpaper. But it creates very cool patterns. Um, that's where, um, like, if you've looked at my my business pages at all some of them will have like a stripe running down uh the tail a real clear stripe they'll look like uh, almost like they're polka dotted to the donors mm -hmm. um, so that's another scale mutation and then we have um let's see what else what am i skipping here mm -hmm. uh, the paradox which is not really truly a paradox as you guys know in the snake world or in the other world um that name was was given to them many years ago, and it was um, based on the information that we had. At, you know that that the the, um, uh, the individual that named them had at that time. Um, so, but obviously that's not really a fit because because they are reproducible. Um, it's um, it definitely is um, something that is heritable, and um, but it is complicated. It's it's okay. complicated with so it's um acts like um it's like um progressive piebaldism um but it, it's tough with bearded dragons because we talk about how prolific they are um and so you can have a female you can have one pairing and you may get a hundred offspring um with the paradox most of the time they're born looking completely normal and then sometime after that, it's typically between shed three and five on most of the time. However, I've had them change, you know, a year later. Um, and I've had them come out of the egg already showing, um, you know, signs of it. But it's constantly changing. Um, and so are you going to hold back 100 baby dragons? Just to see. And how long are you going to hold them back? Now, keeping in mind the conversation that we were having earlier where you have to separate, you know, every couple of weeks as these guys are growing, you're adding bin after bin after bin or enclosure after enclosure after enclosure. Um, so that gets very difficult. It gets very, very expensive. Um, and you may hold them all back and you may get 
one out of a hundred. Well, you know, you've completely, um, your food, but your food budget is out the window because you've been feeding a hundred dragons to get them to a particular size. Um, oh, poor thing. <laughs> we, we got this far. You got pretty far tonight. <laughs> um, so it, it's just not cost effective. So it's really, really difficult to pin it down and, and to determine exactly, um, you know, how it's carried and how it works and so on and so forth. I mean, I can tell you from, I've been producing them since um, 2012. Um, and I produce more of them now than I ever have because I've tinkered with it long enough to, to kind of figure out um, how to produce more of them. But, uh, you know, with greater frequency. Um, but, you know, I, ha I had, um, like I had one pairing this year. The pair one pairing alone, that combo produced 10 that I know of. Hmm. Um, but I also wholesaled quite a few dragons too from that same pairing. So if I do a pairing that I'm looking for paradox in or that I'm hoping for paradox in or, oh, let's see what pops out. Because to me, it's fun. I mean, they're different. They're changing. Um, it's a pretty interesting um, process to watch. So, um, you know, if I end up with, say, three clutches, 20 each, so that's 60 babies, then I'll pick out, you know, 10 of them or 15 of them to watch. Um, and then the rest of them, you know, those will, they'll go out to, you know, the wholesale accounts that I have. And if one develops, then grats them because <laughs> you, you just can't keep them all. It's, it's, it's cost prohibitive. You just can't do it. And so. what makes that 10 to 15 special or stand out that you're keeping back from that? Um, intuition just got i knew, just I knew she was gonna say that i knew yeah. it i knew it i was gonna say insider <laughs> industry knowledge yeah no it really isn't i mean it's just it's you just look at them and you go you look a little bit different and until you've looked at thousands of dragons it's not something that you can say oh well they look like this da, 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 da. i mean i've had some people say oh they look kind of greasy well I mean, I have pl had plenty of them that, you know, that they'll look kind of um, hazy or something before mm. they change, um, you know, maybe right out of the egg. But I haven't really found that to be consistent in my experience at all. Um, I, I don't know. I just am like, OK, you look good. You look good. Oftentimes, a lot of times they're the ones that, that I'm like, OK, if you don't change, you know, would I have a problem um, would you be one that, you know, your, your pattern is beautiful and you're, and you've got a nice growth rate on you. I mean, are you going to be one that I want to rehome when you're 14 inches long or I'm going to be stuck with one? <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, you don't want to end I up mean, with an unsettled. But I mean, that really goes, that, that does go into the equation. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of different factors that I look at when I'm selecting them. So I, I don't, um, I'm not going to select the smallest ones to hang on to, obviously. Right. So. But it's so interesting sense. just looking through your Facebook page, like at the color change that can happen within a couple weeks. Um, oh, yeah. It can be very and, and sometimes the changes occur very, very rapidly. I mean, I've seen them go from, you know, one extreme to another. Literally, my first one that I ever produced, um, he went, he was bright orange. Or, sorry, he was bright green, actually. He was like pretty much like a green, like a yellowish green. Uh, when he went into shed, 
and I'm looking at him in a shed. And, and at that time, he was already, um, I want to say he was six or he was about six months old already. Right. So he went in a shed and I'm looking at him and I'm like, what is going on with you? This Now, mind you, this was the first one. Now I'm like, oh, I see you're changing. Um, but I'm looking at him and I'm like, everything is vanishing underneath his shed. It was just like everything was being washed away under the shed. It was so weird. And sure enough, when he shed out, I mean, he was, he looked like he was silver. It was crazy. Um, he was a hypo, but key lime, he was my first one. So, um, so yeah, it's a really interesting process to watch. And some of them that I have now that I held back from this year, um, you know, I've been watching them change, uh, progress over a period of months. And some of them literally did a, a snap quick change, um, you know, within, uh, what was, what did I just hit on his, uh-oh. Oh, no, no. Sorry. I was just bringing this up just to show some people. I was just so on the laptop when I snapped. <laughs> yeah, see, yeah. So she's been, she's been changing for uh, two months. About side, two months. Down on the side-by-side picture. She had one. Uh, this little guy. Instagram is, no, that one is no, actually. Nope, two different ones, one, right? That one's color. That's the same pairing, yeah. Um, I'm just showing color had, development in that one. I thought you had it. Might, it was probably on my Instagram. Oh, that one, one. Had two different, yeah, that's what I saw. Those are yeah. two weeks, a couple weeks apart. So the whole pattern, like it's not even just changing the coloration. It's changing like where the coloration comes in, which is like, like doesn't really happen. <laughs> it's like, like right here, you know, that like, wasn't even there. It's not completely stable. It's, it's, um, Key Lime changed um, throughout his entire life. So I just lost him this year, which totally sucked um and but he changed throughout his entire year i mean he well i should i should he changed for the first probably the first three years after that i didn't really see any change in the pattern um but but they do um i've had them change completely i've had them go solid purple and then a shed later they revert to normal like they they it looks like it never existed um that's pretty unusual but it does happen i've had i had two last year that did that actually um i've had some that start out with just little one little spot um and they keep that spot or sometimes they'll have one spot and they lose that spot i I mean everything in between so uh some of them will just have you know a blotch on the beard that's that's just color development that one that was a animal same animal Mm -hmm. That's, that's the color development. That has nothing. Yeah, that's not paradox. That's just color development. That was a leather back dinner. So, um, so yeah, it's really it's it's interesting. It's an interesting process to watch, and I think that's why I enjoy them so much. Because after staring at bearded dragons for fifteen years, um, obviously it's like autopilot, and it can get. I don't mean to say boring, but it can get a little bit boring, I guess. Um, and and so this gives me something kind of interesting and fun to play with. <laughs> And I was curious because I've never seen a black bearded dragon before, but he's here one is. He's not black. He's not black. Yeah, I actually always have to say that because people always contact me. I want your black dragon. I'm like, he's not black. Um, he's really, he's a really dark gray purple. Um, and as an adult, I don't know, like right now he's holding solid. Um, but typically, even the ones that, that have a full change like that, a full body change, um, like he went into shed and he completely changed and then he just kept on getting dark. He, he turned completely. Sometimes it's in patches. That one completely changed. 
Usually by the time those are two, then you'll start to see splotches of their original color start to come out. Mm. So like I have a girl, Violet, who is a hypotranslucent. Um, she is going on, she's coming close to three years of age now. And so I'm starting to see like some little peekaboo areas, if you will, of her original color underneath um, just now. So um, his father, the, the one that you see there, his name is Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's extremely dark. He's, uh, he's, I have pictures, a lot of pictures of him on my Instagram. Um, but Darth Vader is splotchy. So he looks almost, he looks almost black. So he's always either uh, like a dark gray to, a, to like a black. Um, and so far, this little guy here is also doing the same. Now, he's not a hypo. Um, which also Darth Vader's not a hypo. So the paradox effect on them, it has a darker uh, appearance than say a hypo. The hypo, they're, they're silver. They look more silver than, um, uh, or like a blue, silver but blue. It seems like all this variation must make it very, very hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the variation in what's make it, what is what makes it fun because right. no two are alike. I mean, they're all over the board. Um, you know, I mentioned the one pairing that I did this year that produced quite a few of them. And, and the, the variation was, was I mean, it was from one side of the spectrum to the other. I mean, uh, he was one of them. And then I have uh, one that I'm growing up right now that just has like a, a splotch on top of his head. Um, and then his back legs look black. <laughs> so I don't know. It's, it's mm-hmm. fun. It's fun to tinker with it. And then Darren from the chat said, if one has a drastic color change, does the offspring of that animal yeah. have similar or is it all over the place? It's all over the place. I've taken, um, like I've taken paradox, like extreme paradox, which would be a high expression paradox. I've taken a high expression to a high expression. Um, and, um, I did that last year. I took a high expression to high expression. I didn't do it this year. Uh, last year I did high expression to high expression because of my situation. I ended up having to wholesale, um, most of them, I only held back like 20, which was unfortunate. Um, out of those 20, then only one of them uh, was a paradox and the expression was moderate. So mm-hmm. it was like a mid-level. So yeah, it's it's kind of, it's interesting. That's kind of annoying. You should get <laughs> <Yeah>. all paradoxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so far from my experience, which again, when you're looking at, I mean, you have to look at your sample size. So, I mean, you can't, a lot of times people will do three pairings and they'll draw this line to this conclusion. Oh, well, this must be this. Well, that's not a, that's not a large enough as a sample size. So unless somebody's really willing and has the, the funding, uh, the patients and a staff that they've hired uh, to literally grow up clutch after clutch after clutch, of, of dragons from different um, combos involving paradox, you really don't, it's, it's almost impossible to gauge what the true um, results are. Cause like I said, it's very cost prohibitive. So I don't know how many of the dragons that I've sent out um, have turned. I know that a number of them have, cause I get the call <laughs> and I'm like, dang it. No. Um, but, um, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's difficult to track. You know, it's, you'd have to grow up all of them. I mean, you need a huge sample size and, and that's just, so, um, but, but based on what I've done, based on, on the combos that I've done over the years, um, I have consistently, um, 
obviously by looking at my page. I mean, I've been consistently producing paradoxes for several years now. Um, and my greatest results come from breeding the, um, you know, uh, siblings of, offsprings of, um, or um, paradox to paradox. I have yet to produce, and, I, and it's not to say that I that you can't, because I don't know. Um, I have yet to see one pop out of of a par- from a paradox to, for lack of another way to put it, a non-carrier. What I believe to be a non-carrier, I have yet to produce one in that manner. So, uh, but any time that I'm utilizing. Um, you know, a sibling to or offspring from, then, then my chances go up. So if somebody's interested in tinkering with it, then I do recommend that you get, um, you know, and, and I've gotten really drastic results from working with just siblings of um, the girl Koi, which is actually um, the, she's the profile picture that I have for one of them next to the lace, that girl. Um, she's a very extreme example um, and then also the girl that we looked at first, um, mm-hmm. the small, uh, those both come from a pairing that is a, um, they are siblings to paradoxes. So neither one of the parents were visuals. That's fluffy. Neither one, <laughs> my daughter named him. <laughs> um, fluffy was, uh, neither one of his parents were visual. I don't know why you open that. You don't know what you're looking for when she's. I know things. it's it's sucks like, because I'm trying no to. I'm know, trying to catch up, but I don't people, know. People follow, you know, like people that are listening are, are going to listen. You know, that follow it and and are kind of interested in paradox. Um, they're gonna know. So, and everybody always contacts me and asks me. You know, do you have any paradox for sale? Do you have any paradox? I mean, they're gone the second that I offer them. I mean, immediately. Um, and so, you know, that can be kind of frustrating because it's not something that you can produce um, um, with any real prediction. So they, they pop up when they pop up. So. And are those, as far as the lineage that you, or to your knowledge, are they pure viticeps or is there is it possible that there's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. To my knowledge, they are. So I, I did cross Fluffy, the one that you showed that was in my hand. That was my, um, he's, that's actually on my personal profile. Mm-hmm. as well um i crossed um i crossed him to a uh, one of my hybrids this year and i did not too much yes that's him that's when he was younger. He's, yeah he was he was like a sub-adult there um but anyway so i crossed him to um a hybrid uh and i did not as of right now i have not seen any changes occur i haven't i haven't producing, I haven't seen any evidence of a visual sibling or offspring, but I, but I did, uh, like I said, I mean, I've got, you know, I've got wholesale accounts that I, you know, I've got pet stores and and whatnot that I sell to. So a lot of them do go out and they're, they're mixed up in those. So what percentage of, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it happen yet. What percentage of, um, what you produce do you wholesale? Um, this year, and this year it was really high. This year, I honestly, um, I got a little bit um, burned out, I guess. <laughs> um, from I had to kind of step, take a step back a little bit from social media, I guess. Uh, I haven't vanished by any chance, I, by any stretch of the imagination. But, but we we have, um, you know, 
Ron and I, have, we have about 32 species now. So um, getting heavily involved with them, setting up, you know, working on housing. Um, I mean, I'm constantly busy. I'm very, very busy. So I haven't had a lot of spare time mm-hmm. to be able to take a million photos. People are like, oh, just send me a photo you know, of what you have available. It's really not that simple. Have you ever tried to get a beetle dragon to sit still while you take a photo? So, and actually how, you know, so for one photo I may take that I post online, I may take, I mean, I may get that right off the bat, but I may also take 20 pictures before I get one that's actually usable. Um, that's one that I can use or post. So it's, um, you know, it's a time consuming thing. So you kind of, I don't know. I've been trying to find balance between wholesale and retail. I'm an introvert. Um, so it's hard for me to put myself out there like this, like this today has like had me shaking the whole time. Um, oh I'm not, you can't tell it all. Yeah. Now, it's all. been amazing. I'm, I'm just kind of scatterbrained. I'm kind of all over the board, but I, I, other than that, I think I've done all right. But, um, yeah, I, so it's difficult for me to put myself out there as it is. I, I love working with the animals. I enjoy the animals and, um, and so I, I really like to spend most of my time there. Um, retail sales requires a tremendous amount of your time and mm-hmm. it's a tremendous amount of dedication to do it right. And I always want to do it right. I never want to um, not service somebody because I don't have the time to take care of what the, their needs are. So the reality is like I'm always kind of trying to, to keep this formula in my mind of how many animals can I realistically retail each year? And be able to provide my clients with an optimal uh, experience and be able to provide them with the customer service so that if I have that one client that has 100 questions, then I can answer them and I'm available to, to answer them without it being detrimental to the other animals that I have here to care for or without it being uh, of detriment to, you know, spending time with, with my family. You know, my, my, my daughter is seven years old. I mean, my son's 21 now, but... My daughter's seven. So I missed a lot of stuff um, for my son um, because I was working. Uh, and like I said, in the jewelry industry, I was working like 70 hours a week a lot of times. So I missed a lot of stuff with him that I don't want to miss with my daughter. So it, it's about balance. And so trying to find that balance. Um, and for me, if I, I can retail up to about 500 animals a year and provide a really good customer experience, Um, beyond that, I feel like I get a little, I get kind of drained and that something is suffering. And I I don't, I, my animals come first, no matter what, that's always the way it is. And um, it may sometimes come across rude and I never mean it to be, but my animals are my number one, I mean, well, my family, but I, I mean, as far as my business is concerned, my animals are number one. So I take care of them before I'm posting pictures. I don't care. You're going to have to wait. Like, I don't mean that. Um, you know, to be disrespectful or to, um, you know, not take care of somebody, but they come first. And if I'm overloaded and I'm trying to get enclosures built before winter, or I'm trying to make sure that they have everything that they need, that's what I'm going to do. And if that means that I don't list online for a month, then that's the way it is. Um, and then I have an obligation, obviously, to, you know, the shows, the expos as well that I sign up for. Um, we did reduce our schedule greatly uh, this year. Yay. Um, for 2020. So, um, I'm probably only going to be doing about 12 shows maybe, um, where I was doing, you know, upwards of about 30 a year, Yeah, which gets really 
draining um, because it's not just the day or two you're spending at the expo. You guys know it's the time that you're spending to prepare. It's the and prep. It, yeah. It's the prep, and it's the and then when you get back, you know you're playing you're playing catch up. Um, and with what we have here now, we need somebody here at all times too. So if I'm gone, if we're gone, um, then somebody needs to be here. Um, because, you know, because of, I mean, the, the projects that we have going on now are just, um, you know, it's, it's pretty, getting pretty expansive. You know, there's a lot here. Bell's phase lace monitors. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Someone, someone in the chat asked a question a long time ago, and I feel bad for not uh, sneaking it in there. So sorry, I got a rapid fire questions at you, but I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about. So Barda Barda. Barbada, no. So that <laughs> is, okay, so that's what he's yeah. referring to? Yeah, I'm assuming. Okay, so do you, you don't have any available for sale? I actually don't currently have any pures. I have anywhere from... Um, like the first generation crosses um, into third generation crosses. So I don't. And are there any it. mutations in those uh, in those mixed animals? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been very. Um, I've tried different things to see um, to see. Uh, most okay, so I I did um, like one pairing this year. Uh, I did a hybrid that's clean that doesn't have anything at all um, to a het hypo. So I had some that were uh, quarters, second generation, that were het for hypo, and then um, and then I had one pairing that I did combine um, uh, the genetic stripe and dunner. Um, so so I've kind of played around with it a little bit, but I'm trying to keep a lot of those animals, um, you know, pretty void of um like i've kind of i'm i'm ending the days of stacking i guess you could say you know i'm trying not to stack a lot of stuff anymore so and and this year when i did all my plantings for next year i i took it down even more so so is it possible to get to a level to where i mean is your the way you see it as far as you want to make like the best hypo there is and not necessarily the best hypo Dunner Leatherback. I'm just saying names that I've heard before from you, but to me, so here's the thing, and and that's just where, um, like Ron's experience, for example, most of his experience has been in in the wholesale realm. Most of my experience has been in retail, um, in combination with a, a small amount of wholesale, uh, and of course, the wholesale has grown over the years as my business has grown. Because I mean, you can't you can't retail that many animals; it's just impossible. Um, so. Um, his experience was his viewpoint on it was, was different because it was looking at it from, from a different place. You know, he would wholesale them out. He never dealt with the customer. Um, I'm dealing with the customer. So I get uh, the pictures, you know, of the little seven-year-old that's holding the bearded dragon or the birthday party, you know, for the bearded dragon with the squash cupcake they made. And, you know, I'm getting all of these, I mean, these animals, um, um, become part of the lives of many. And so to me, I feel like I have a responsibility to produce the best I possibly can, that I, the, the, the best that I'm capable of, uh, because I don't want to produce something that I feel like is um, not as strong as it could be 
uh, because I know that somebody's going to be crushed when that animal passes. So it's, um, it's interesting. I, I, I have, um, the industry is, um, it's funny. <laughs> um, I don't even know how to describe it, but when you're producing bearded dragons, some of the more, not all, certainly not all, but some of the more hardcores that are into some of the other species, some of the more difficult, some of the more, uh, I should say some of the rare species or some of the more difficult to produce, um, have a tendency sometimes to look down upon a dragon breeder or they look down upon um, bearded dragons in general. And, but I mean, the reality is, is that it's an entry pet. I mean, this is an, this is an entry animal um, for uh, the young, you know, for our, our younger generations that are growing up, you know, this is where they get their first, their first reptile is often a bearded dragon, you know, a, a corn, you know, a corn snake, a, a leopard gecko, a crested gecko. I mean, those are ball python, you know, those are all very common first reptiles. And it's important for them to have a really good experience. It's important for them to, um, I don't want them to have a bad experience with that. Um, so I, I think that's a lot, there's a lot of responsibility there to do it right, no matter what you're breeding. So I don't know. Absolutely. And I kind of, if you don't mind, just a little bit more, just one more question about like doing shows, because I feel like we're often, we're just kind of getting started and doing shows, mm -hmm. you know, multiple times a month. And it's been a whole crazy experience and not always a positive one. So how do you go about pretty much interacting with people at shows? Cause you have animals that you're selling as pets as we do as well. And like, how do you balance the amount of questions with the amount of people wanting to hold the animal with, you know, and what kind of exposure are you trying to get customers? Mm -hmm. Cause I mean, we usually have like an animal out for people to hold, but we're always kind of iffy about that situation. Cause it goes one way or another. And it's kind yeah. of annoying. I honestly, um, I don't allow anybody to hold any of my dragons. So um, it used to be I got more shit for it, for lack of another way to put it. Um, I would get a lot more shit for it than I do nowadays. Most people are very respectful of that. The reason why I don't do it is a couple of, well, actually there's a couple of reasons why I don't do it. Number one is if you've been to a show uh, sometimes you see things, you as a vendor, you as, uh, you know, as somebody that's in the right, you see things that really shouldn't be there, you know, that, that are, that, that are dying on tables or, you know, there's, there's something very wrong with them. So unfortunately it's a, um, you know, it's a place that we can pick up things and bring them home that we don't want, um, whether it be a virus or, you know, a fungus of some sort or whatever. So I actually don't allow anybody to handle the dragons. So I don't allow them to have that experience. And the reason I do that is not to be a jerk. It's not to not give, I want them to have that experience, but I also know, I also know what I've seen in the shows over the last, you know, the show circuits over the last 15 years. And I've seen some really nasty stuff. Um, and, and I don't want that to become, I don't want that to um, cause a problem with my collection because I care about my collection. Um, and I don't want it to be a problem for anybody that bought a dragon from me either. So if somebody comes up to my table and they've held a dragon at somebody else's table, because we know that they can be unfortunate, you know, it can be also a little bit of a petting zoo. And I don't mean that in a derogatory 
way, but I mean, it can, you know, you have people that just want to hold, want to hold, want to hold, and they go from table, 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 and they hold, they hold, they hold. Uh, you can use all the sanitizer you want in the world, but you know, if a little dragon decides to jump up on your shoulder, you know, you've lost control of that. And, you know, I don't put a hundred percent faith in sanitizer to kill everything or the use of the sanitizer. How did you use the sanitizer? I don't know. So I just, to, to make sure that I, I always let my clients know, look, I want you to have this experience. However, there are risks involved with doing a show and I try to reduce those risks as much as possible. And so I ask, you know, respectfully that, that, you know, people understand that, that I don't allow anybody to hold them. This is why I'll take out anything that you want to see and I'll be happy to hold it. You can see how it interacts with me. You can, you know, um, but I just don't, if you take home something from me, I want it to be as healthy as possible. I don't want it to have picked up anything from the show and I don't want to take home anything that I don't want either. So I try to be, um, you know, that's just kind of, I, I end up putting like a shield over, I, I have a, you know, a plexi shield that I put over my tubs. Uh, and then every now and then you still have somebody that sticks their hand in it. <laughs> I can't even see red because I think that's disrespectful. But <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I just, it's like if there's a shield there, I mean, there's a reason for it. And it says, do, please do not touch or ask for assistance. Why would you put your hand in there? You know, and I've had people say, well, I paid $15 to get in. And okay, well, great. I mean, you didn't pay me $15. Like, <laughs> these are my animals. I mean, if you haven't paid for them yet, I mean, if you want to take, you know, if you want to take it out of its uh, take home container and you want to walk around it, well, that's on you. You know, I don't recommend it. I even tell my customers, I'm like, you know, leave your animal in its container until you've gotten home and, you know, your setup's done and you've washed up and so on and so forth. Don't go showing it around the show. Um, the other thing is it generates a lot of stress. It creates a okay. tremendous amount of stress for the animal. I'm not going to put any additional stress on the animal by having them being held a hundred times during the show. I mean, to me, that's not fair to the animal. So, I mean, that's a lot for them to take in. Most of those animals are going to a show, you know, that this is the first time they've been out of their environment. You know, what they know is their environment. Um, and in their short life or, you know, if they're two months old, I mean, this is the first time that they've gotten packed up and taken somewhere. So the last thing I want to do is have 80 people hold it. So, yeah. And is there any type of adjustment period for say, you know, a bearded dragon going into the humidity of Florida or do they seem to do fine with it? Um, the only time I've noticed any type of adjustment period sometimes, and it's pretty rare nowadays is if I bring in a dragon from California, um, you know, or a drier environment, uh, Arizona or something like that, then, then sometimes I notice them go through a little different acclimation perhaps then. Um, but for the most part, no, I mean, they really tolerate, um, humidity. I mean, I think people think desert, no humidity. And so they're like, Oh, you can't do that. You know, you can't breed dragons in Florida because the humidity is too high. Um, I mean, I've been doing it for 15 years, you know, Ron did it for over 30. So I think they, you know, and he did it outside. So um, it's the big thing with outdoors. Um, and that's been very, um, I've really enjoyed that experience. I've really, really enjoyed that experience is a couple of things. Number one, I'm able to provide them with a much more um, naturalistic environment. So my adults now have, um, a four foot by four foot enclosures that are uh, almost three feet tall with all different levels. So it's not just a four by four. I mean, there's multi levels. So 
There's um, there's branches in there. I mean, you can see it. I've been posting uh, quite a bit recently. Um, and and they really get to be dragons and they get to build their muscle strength. And and um, and so I'm really enjoying that experience. But it's very different than keeping indoors. I mean, there's definitely a um, there's there's a huge difference. So uh, with outdoor keeping uh, during the summer, it's a lot more maintenance free. It's just, you know, kind of basically feeding and, you know, there's the cleaning uh, issue has, you know, is gone um, for the most part, which is really nice. I like that because cleaning bearded dragons is very, very, very labor intensive. Uh, When you're cleaning 200 dragon enclosures in a day um, and you're doing it, you know, day after day after day, that's a tremendous, that's a lot of labor. Um, they eat a lot of food, so they poop a lot. Um, so anyway, having the adults outside has been a really cool experience during the summer. The, the maintenance of them is much lower this time of year though. You're constantly tweaking, you know, or when we get rainstorms, you're constantly tweaking. So you're, you're messing with like, we have six mil plastic that we're using, uh, during the winter, um, that we have to, you know, somebody always needs to be here to be able to vent or to, you know, mm-hmm. when to cover, when to vent, at what time do you vent, at what time do you cover at night? Like, you know, there's, and so, you know, watching the weather conditions. I mean, I've learned more about weather in the last couple of years than, <laughs> than I, than I definitely ever did before. <laughs> it's almost like you turn into more of a farmer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my dad called my dad. Uh, yeah, my dad calls me a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, yeah. you're farming reptiles. Yeah, yeah. Well, he calls me a dragon rancher, I should say. He calls me a dragon rancher. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm the dragon rancher in the family. But anyway, um, so uh, it's been a really interesting, it's been a great experience. Um, and I'm very grateful for that, to be able to um, gain that additional skill set and that, addition, that additional knowledge um, and, and to really be able to see how differently they behave um, outdoors um, versus indoors. I just think it's, I think it's really interesting. So I do encourage my clients that are able to, to have an outdoor enclosure that they utilize, um, you know, when the weather is optimal, that they use, you know, when they have a good weather day, obviously, you know, if they live up North, they're not going to be sticking their bearded dragon out right now. Um, But during the summer months, if they have an outdoor enclosure, you know, then I encourage that. Um, and I encourage them to set something up where they, their reptiles can climb and, and, and build muscle strength. And because they're, they're feeling a dragon that has been able to actually, um, like when, when I started the indoor outdoor system before we had the, the full outdoor, um, that had a lot of climbing opportunities for them as well. And the difference in the animal was, you know, a healthy dragon that, that felt good to me before started to feel different um, when they were able to really, really, utilize all their muscles, you know, that, that they may not use in a traditional enclosure. So, and what makes like, cause I've seen that the natural, sorry, uh, I'm going way over. This will be the last thing. So, um, animals that look, you know, animals that I've seen from the wild, from whether it's TV or from like Steve Irwin back in the day, uh, these bearded dragons seem crazy, flighty, very willing to, you know, show their defense and stuff like that. And it seems like the furthest thing from the animals that we have in captivity now. Well, um, I mean, they've been pretty, yeah, they've been domesticated. <laughs> I mean, th- 30 generations in, I mean, they're, you know. They're now these things like don't move. 
Yeah. I mean, they're couch potatoes. I mean, they really are. I mean, once the older they get, the lazier they get when they're younger, um, they're, they're up and moving pretty good, but as they age, then they get, you know, a little bit more sedentary and they're just happy just to kind of chill and sit there. Um, some of my older ones that I have, uh, in the outdoor enclosures, um, you know, they, but I mean, they, they're, they're pretty active, but they're not as active. So, so despite um, all that extra space and climbing opportunities, stuff like that, it doesn't seem to have no, a big, I mean, they're using it. They're definitely using it. All of them are using it. So um, I have some other dragons still to get outdoors, but my oldest one outdoors right now, I think is six. So, um, and, um, and he loves it. So, I mean, I've noticed a difference in his muscle tone. So and just in his strength when he grips me, you know, when I pull him out, I mean, they just, they feel solid. I don't know. It's, it's difficult to describe. So, and I mean, he's always been, you know, a good I don't know. He always felt good to me, but then after you, I don't know. It's just, I guess the difference of going to the gym and not going to the gym. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you would think, right? Yeah. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Awesome. Well, I started this show as a bearded dragon, mm -hmm. complete novice. that didn't know anything. And now I feel like I could confidently keep a bearded dragon. Don't look at me like you that. You say that like you didn't have one before. No, they didn't do very well. <laughs> so you were, did not come. It was here. like 1998 and it wasn't. A, no, I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. You're also seven. Yeah, that's a good. That's good I, have, I have a lot of first time snake keepers that, that will, uh, or sorry, snake keepers that will decide that they want to breed dragons. And they're like, oh, my God, <laughs> they get them. And they're so totally different. It's so. Yes, it takes such a different level of, well, first of all, like daily things that you have to do for the animal. We're not used to that. We like the whole, like, you could leave them alone for a week. So, yeah, yeah no, this is very, very labor intensive. I mean, you get a lot more out of them, um, but I mean, they're, they're really interactive. There's a, there's a lot more, but it's, it's extremely time consuming. So, but it's enjoyable. I love it. You have to really love the species in order to do well with it or you'll, you'll be done in two years. So yeah, like I've even tried to uh, breed crested geckos, and then after a little while, I was like, this. <laughs> like, this isn't as much fun as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, probably take because we have crested geckos as well. Take that and multiply it by ten. <laughs> <laughs> yes. On, on the uh, the dragon world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like crested gecko is the easiest lizard you could ever imagine, and that yeah. was too much. <laughs> um, Heather, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to find you? Um, I have, I'm pretty active on both um, under Fairy Tale Dragons with a T A I L under both uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, and then that's you. I have a website as well, although um, I haven't really been listing anything recently on it, but I mean, they can certainly contact me through the site as well. And I'll, in the spring, I'll start listing again there with the weather change. Like you guys, I mean, I try to limit my, uh, my sales and try to keep it, you know, in Florida. And that's hard to control when you're putting it on a main site or morph market. So, but I do list on morph market as well. And do you have shows coming up? I do. Um, I have the Orlando show, which is, you know, 20 minutes from me, uh, this weekend. So, and then huh. that's it for the year until January. So. There you go. Guys, check out the Orlando show. As for us, portcitypythons.com, portcitypythons Instagram, portcitypythons 
you distracted me with your head moving. 435 on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Joe Fallon PCP at TikTok, and figure out how to spell my last name. That that was a bad name choice, wasn't it? Oh, no, maybe there's another person's name. Uh, yes, yeah, so Melon Joe PCP. Yeah, that's what it should have been. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We will talk about this TikTok decision later, and uh, we will catch you guys next week. Awesome. Bye. Thank you.